The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo, Book 21, Chapter 1. I propose with such ability as God may grant me to discuss in this book more thoroughly the nature of the punishment which shall be assigned to the devil and all his retainers when the two cities, the one of God, the other of the devil, shall have reached their proper ends through Jesus Christ our Lord, the judge of quick and dead. And I have adopted this order and preferred to speak first of the punishment of the devils and afterwards of the blessedness of the saints, because the body partakes of either destiny, and it seems to be more incredible that bodies endure in everlasting torments than that they continue to exist without any pain in everlasting felicity. Consequently, when I shall have demonstrated that that punishment ought not to be incredible, this will materially aid me in proving that which is much more credible, that is, the immortality of the bodies of the saints, which are delivered from all pain. Neither is this order out of harmony with the divine writings, in which sometimes indeed the blessedness of the good is placed first, as in the words, They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of judgment. But sometimes also last, as, The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things which offend, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire, there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of his Father. And that these shall go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. And though we have not room to cite instances, any one who examines the prophets will find that they adopt now the one arrangement and now the other. My own reason for following the latter order I have given. Chapter 2 what then can I adduce to convince those who refuse to believe that human bodies, animated and living, can not only survive death, but also last in the torments of everlasting fires? They will not allow us to refer this simply to the power of the Almighty, but demand that we persuade them by some example. If then we reply to them that there are animals which certainly are corruptible because they are mortal, and which yet live in the midst of flames, and likewise that in springs of water so hot that no one can put his hand in it with impunity, a species of worm is found, which not only lives there, but cannot live elsewhere. They either refuse to believe these facts unless we can show them, or, if we are in circumstances to prove them by ocular demonstration or by adequate testimony, they contend with the same skepticism that these facts are not examples of what we seek to prove, inasmuch as these animals do not live for ever, and besides, they live in that blaze of heat without pain, the element of fire being congenial to their nature, and causing it to thrive and not to suffer just as if it were not more incredible that it should thrive than that it should suffer in such circumstances. It is strange that anything should suffer in fire and yet live, but stranger that it should live in fire and not suffer. If then the latter be believed, why not also the former? Chapter 3 But, say they, there is no body which can suffer and cannot also die. How do we know this? For who can say with certainty that the devils do not suffer in their bodies when they own that they are grievously tormented? And if it is replied that there is no earthly body, that is to say, no solid and perceptible body, or, in one word, no flesh, 
which can suffer and cannot die, is not this to tell us only what men have gathered from experience and their bodily senses? For they indeed have no acquaintance with any flesh but that which is mortal, and this is their whole argument, that what they have had no experience of they judge quite impossible. For we cannot call it reasoning to make pain a presumption of death, while in fact it is rather a sign of life. For though it be a question whether that which suffers can continue to live for ever, yet it is certain that everything which suffers pain does live, and that pain can exist only in a living subject. It is necessary, therefore, that he who is pained be living, not necessary that pain kill him, for every pain does not kill even those mortal bodies of ours which are destined to die and that any pain kills them is caused by the circumstance that the soul is so connected with the body that it succumbs to great pain and withdraws. For the structure of our members and vital parts is so infirm that it cannot bear up against that violence which causes great or extreme agony. But in the life to come this connection of soul and body is of such a kind that as it is dissolved by no lapse of time, so neither is it burst asunder by any pain." And so, although it be true that in this world there is no flesh which can suffer pain, and yet cannot die, yet in the world to come there shall be flesh such as now there is not, as there will also be death such as now there is not. For death will not be abolished, but will be eternal, since the soul will neither be able to enjoy God and live, nor to die and escape the pains of the body. The first death drives the soul from the body against her will. The second death holds the soul in the body against her will. The two have this in common, that the soul suffers against her will what her own body inflicts. Our opponents, too, make much of this, that in this world there is no flesh which can suffer pain and cannot die, while they make nothing of the fact that there is something which is greater than the body. For the spirit whose presence animates and rules the body can both suffer pain and cannot die. Here, then, is something which, though it can feel pain, is immortal. And this capacity which we now see in the spirit of all shall be hereafter in the bodies of the damned. Moreover, if we attend to the matter a little more closely, we see that what is called bodily pain is rather to be referred to the soul. For it is the soul, not the body, which is pained, even when the pain originates with the body, the soul feeling pain at the point where the body is hurt. As then we speak of bodies feeling and living, though the feeling and life of the body are from the soul, so also we speak of bodies being pained, though no pain can be suffered by the body apart from the soul. The soul then is pained with the body in that part where something occurs to hurt it, and it is pained alone, though it be in the body, when some invisible cause distresses it, while the body is safe and sound. Even when not associated with the body, it is pained, for certainly that rich man was suffering in hell when he cried, I am tormented in this flame. But as for the body, it suffers no pain when it is soulless, and even when adamant, it can suffer only by the soul's suffering. If, therefore, we might draw a just presumption from the existence of pain to that of death, and conclude that where pain can be felt, death can occur, death would rather be the property of the soul, for to it pain more peculiarly belongs. 
but seeing that that which suffers most cannot die, what ground is there for supposing that those bodies, because destined to suffer, are therefore destined to die? The Platonists indeed maintained that these earthly bodies and dying members give rise to the fears, desires, griefs, and joys of the soul. Hence, says Virgil, that is, from these earthly bodies and dying members, hence wild desires and groveling fears and human laughter, human tears. But in the fourteenth book of this work we have proved that according to the Platonists' own theory, souls, even when purged from all pollution of the body, are yet possessed by a monstrous desire to return again into their bodies. But where desire can exist, certainly pain also can exist. For desire frustrated, either by missing what it aims at or losing what it had attained, is turned into pain. And therefore, if the soul, which is either the only or the chief sufferer, has yet a kind of immortality of its own, it is inconsequent to say that because the bodies of the damned shall suffer pain, therefore they shall die. In fine, if the body causes the soul to suffer, why can the body not cause death as well as suffering, unless because it does not follow that what causes pain causes death as well? And why, then, is it incredible that these fires can cause pain but not death to those bodies we speak of, just as the bodies themselves cause pain but not, therefore, death to the souls? Pain is therefore no necessary presumption of death. Chapter 4 If, therefore, the salamander lives in fire, as naturalists have recorded, and if certain famous mountains of Sicily have been continually on fire from the remotest antiquity until now, and yet remain entire, these are sufficiently convincing examples that everything which burns is not consumed. As the soul, too, is a proof that not everything which can suffer pain can also die, why, then, do they yet demand that we produce real examples to prove that it is not incredible that the bodies of men condemned to everlasting punishment may retain their soul in the fire, may burn without being consumed, and may suffer without perishing? For suitable properties will be communicated to the substance of the flesh by him who has endowed the things we see with so marvelous and diverse properties that their very multitude prevents our wonder. For who but God the Creator of all things has given to the flesh of the peacock its antiseptic property? This property, when I first heard of it, seemed to me incredible. But it happened at Carthage that a bird of this kind was cooked and served up to me, and, taking a suitable slice of flesh from its breast, I ordered it to be kept, and when it had been kept as many days as make any other flesh stinking, it was produced and set before me, and emitted no offensive smell. And after it had been laid by for thirty days and more, it was still in the same state, and a year after the same still, except that it was a little more shriveled and drier. Who gave the chaff such power to freeze that it preserves snow buried under it, and such power to warm that it ripens green fruit? But who can explain the strange properties of fire itself, which blackens everything it burns, though itself bright, and which, though of the most beautiful colors, discolors almost all it touches and feeds upon, and turns blazing fuel into grimy cinders? Still, this is not laid down as an absolutely uniform law, 
For, on the contrary, stones baked in glowing fire themselves also glow, and though the fire be rather of a red hue, and they white, yet white is congruous with light, and black with darkness. Thus, though the fire burns the wood in calcining the stones, these contrary effects do not result from the contrariety of the materials. For though wood and stone differ, they are not contraries like black and white, the one of which colors is produced in the stones, while the other is produced in the wood by the same action of fire, which imparts its own brightness to the former, while it begrimes the latter, and which could have no effect on the one were it not fed by the other. Then what wonderful properties do we find in charcoal, which is so brittle that a light tap breaks it, and a slight pressure pulverizes it, and yet is so strong that no moisture rots it, nor any time causes it to decay? So enduring is it that it is customary in laying down landmarks to put charcoal underneath them, so that if, after the longest interval, any one raises an action and pleads that there is no boundary stone, he may be convicted by the charcoal below. What, then, has enabled it to last so long without rotting, though buried in the damp earth in which its original wood rots, except this same fire which consumes all things? Again, let us consider the wonders of lime. For besides growing white in fire, which makes other things black, and of which I have already said enough, it has also a mysterious property of conceiving fire within it. Itself cold to the touch, it yet has a hidden store of fire, which is not at once apparent to our senses, but which experience teaches us, lies as it were slumbering within it, even while unseen. And it is for this reason called quick lime, as if the fire were the invisible soul quickening the visible substance or body. But the marvelous thing is that this fire is kindled when it is extinguished. For to disengage the hidden fire the lime is moistened or drenched with water, and then, though it be cold before, it becomes hot by that very application which cools what is hot. As if the fire were departing from the lime and breathing its last, it no longer lies hid, but appears. And then the lime, lying in the coldness of death, cannot be requickened, and what we before called quick, we now call slaked. What can be stranger than this? Yet there is a greater marvel still. For if you treat the lime not with water, but with oil, which is as fuel to fire, no amount of oil will heat it. Now if this marvel had been told us of some Indian mineral which we had no opportunity of experimenting upon, we should either have forthwith pronounced it a falsehood, or certainly should have been greatly astonished. But things that daily present themselves to our own observation we despise, not because they are really less marvellous, but because they are common, so that even some products of India itself, remote as it is from ourselves, cease to excite our admiration as soon as we can admire them at our leisure. The diamond is a stone possessed by many among ourselves, especially by jewellers and lapidaries, and the stone is so hard that it can be wrought neither by iron nor fire, nor, they say, by anything at all except goat's blood. But do you suppose it is as much admired by those who own it and are familiar with its properties as by those to whom it is shown for the first time? Persons who have not seen it perhaps do not believe what is said of it, or if they do they wonder as at a thing beyond their experience, and if they happen to see it still they marvel because they are unused to it, 
but gradually familiar experience of it dulls their admiration. We know that the lodestone has a wonderful power of attracting iron. When I first saw it I was thunderstruck, for I saw an iron ring attracted and suspended by the stone, and then, as if it had communicated its own property to the iron it attracted, and had made it a substance like itself, this ring was put near another, and lifted it up, and as the first ring clung to the magnet, so did the second ring to the first. A third and a fourth were similarly added, so that there hung from the stone a kind of chain of rings with their hoops connected, not interlinking, but attached together by their outer surface. Who would not be amazed at this virtue of the stone, subsisting as it does not only in itself, but transmitted through so many suspended rings, and binding them together by invisible links? Yet far more astonishing is what I heard about this stone from my brother in the episcopate, Severus, bishop of Milevus. He told me that Bathanarius, once count of Africa, when the bishop was dining with him, produced a magnet, and held it under a silver plate on which he placed a bit of iron. Then, as he moved his hand with the magnet underneath the plate, the iron upon the plate moved about accordingly. The intervening silver was not affected at all, but precisely as the magnet was moved backwards and forwards below it, no matter how quickly, so was the iron attracted above. I have related what I myself have witnessed, I have related what I was told by one whom I trust as I trust my own eyes. Let me further say what I have read about this magnet. When a diamond is laid near it, it does not lift iron, or, if it has already lifted it, as soon as the diamond approaches, it drops it. These stones come from India. But if we cease to admire them because they are now familiar, how much less must they admire them who procure them very easily and send them to us? Perhaps they are held as cheap as we hold lime, which, because it is common, we think nothing of, though it has the strange property of burning when water, which is wont to quench fire, is poured on it and of remaining cool when mixed with oil, which ordinarily feeds fire. Chapter 5 Nevertheless, when we declare the miracles which God has wrought, or will yet work, and which we cannot bring under the very eyes of men, skeptics keep demanding that we shall explain these marvels to reason. And because we cannot do so, inasmuch as they are above human comprehension, they suppose we are speaking falsely. These persons themselves, therefore, ought to account for all these marvels which we either can or do see. And if they perceive that this is impossible for man to do, they should acknowledge that it cannot be concluded that a thing has not been or shall not be because it cannot be reconciled to reason, since there are things now in existence of which the same is true. I will not then detail the multitude of marvels which are related in books, and which refer not to things that happened once and passed away, but that are permanent in certain places, where, if any one has the desire and opportunity, he may ascertain their truth, but a few only I recount. The following are some of the marvels men tell us. The salt of Agrigentum in Sicily, when thrown into the fire, becomes fluid as if it were in water but in the water it crackles as if it were in the fire. The Garamante have a fountain so cold by day that no one can drink it, so hot by night no one can touch it. In Epirus, too, there is a fountain which, like all others, quenches lighted torches, but unlike all others, lights quench torches. 
There is a stone found in Arcadia, and called asbestos, because once lit it cannot be put out. The wood of a certain kind of Egyptian fig tree sinks in water, and does not float like other wood, and, stranger still, when it has been sunk to the bottom for some time, it rises again to the surface, though nature requires that when soaked in water it should be heavier than ever. Then there are the apples of Sodom, which grow indeed to an appearance of ripeness, but when you touch them with hand or tooth, the peel cracks, and they crumble into dust and ashes. The Persian stone Pyrates burns the hand when it is tightly held in it, and so gets its name from fire. In Persia, too, there is found another stone called selenite, because its interior brilliancy waxes and wanes with the moon. Then in Cappadocia the mares are impregnated by the wind, and their foals live only three years. Tilan, an Indian island, has this advantage over all other lands, that no tree which grows in it ever loses its foliage. These and numberless other marvels recorded in the history not of past events, but of permanent localities, I have no time to enlarge upon and diverge from my main object. But let those skeptics who refuse to credit the divine writings give me, if they can, a rational account of them. For their only ground of unbelief in the scriptures is that they contain incredible things just such as I have been recounting. For, say they, reason cannot admit that flesh burn and remain unconsumed, suffer without dying. Mighty reasoners indeed, who are competent to give the reason of all the marvels that exist. Let them then give us the reason of the few things we have cited, and which, if they did not know they existed, and were only assured by us they would at some future time occur, they would believe still less than that which they now refuse to credit on our word. For which of them would believe us, if, instead of saying that the living bodies of men hereafter will be such as to endure everlasting pain and fire without ever dying, we were to say that in the world to come there will be salt which becomes liquid in fire as if it were in water, and crackles in water as if it were in fire, or that there will be a fountain whose water in the chill air of night is so hot that it cannot be touched, while in the heat of day it is so cold that it cannot be drunk, or that there will be a stone which by its own heat burns the hand when tightly held, or a stone which cannot be extinguished if it has been lit in any part, or any of those wonders I have cited, while omitting numberless others. If we were to say that these things would be found in the world to come, and our skeptics were to reply, If you wish us to believe these things, satisfy our reason about each of them, we should confess that we could not, because the frail comprehension of man cannot master these and such like wonders of God's working and that yet our reason was thoroughly convinced that the Almighty does nothing without reason, though the frail mind of man cannot explain the reason, and that while we are in many instances uncertain what he intends, yet that it is always most certain that nothing which he intends is impossible to him, and that when he declares his mind we believe him whom we cannot believe to be either powerless or false. Nevertheless, these cavillers at faith and exactors of reason, how do they dispose of those things of which a reason cannot be given, and which yet exist, though in apparent contrariety to the nature of things? If we had announced that these things were to be, these skeptics would have demanded from us the reason of them, as they do in the case of those things which we are announcing as destined to be.
and consequently, as these present marvels are not non-existent, though human reason and discourse are lost in such works of God, so those things we speak of are not impossible because inexplicable, for in this particular they are in the same predicament as the marvels of earth. Chapter 6 At this point they will perhaps reply, These things have no existence, we don't believe one of them, they are travellers' tales and fictitious romances. And they may add what has the appearance of argument, and say, If you believe such things as these, believe what is recorded in the same books, that there was or is a temple of Venus, in which a candelabrum set in the open air holds a lamp which burns so strongly that no storm or rain extinguishes it, and which is therefore called, like the stone mentioned above, the asbestos or inextinguishable lamp. They may say this with the intention of putting us into a dilemma, for if we say this is incredible, then we shall impugn the truth of the other recorded marvels. If, on the other hand, we admit that this is credible, we shall avouch the pagan deities. But, as I have already said in the eighteenth book of this work, we do not hold it necessary to believe all that profane history contains, since, as Varro says, even historians themselves disagree on so many points that one would think they intended and were at pains to do so. But we believe, if we are disposed, those things which are not contradicted by these books, which we do not hesitate to say we are bound to believe. But as to those permanent miracles of nature, whereby we wish to persuade the skeptical of the miracles of the world to come, those are quite sufficient for our purpose, which we ourselves can observe, or of which it is not difficult to find trustworthy witnesses. Moreover, that temple of Venus, with its inextinguishable lamp, so far from hemming us into a corner, opens an advantageous field to our argument. For to this inextinguishable lamp we add a host of marvels wrought by men, or by magic, that is, by men under the influence of devils, or by the devils directly. For such marvels we cannot deny without impugning the truth of the sacred scriptures we believe. That lamp, therefore, was either by some mechanical and human device fitted with asbestos, or it was arranged by magical art in order that the worshippers might be astonished, or some devil under the name of Venus so signally manifested himself that this prodigy both began and became permanent. Now devils are attracted to dwell in certain temples by means of the creatures, God's creatures, not theirs, who present to them what suits their various tastes. They are attracted not by food like animals, but like spirits by such symbols as suit their taste, various kinds of stones, woods, plants, animals, songs, rites. And that men may provide these attractions, the devils first of all cunningly seduce them, either by imbuing their hearts with a sacred poison, or by revealing themselves under a friendly guise, and thus make a few of them their disciples, who become the instructors of the multitude. For unless they first instructed men, it were impossible to know what each of them desires, what they shrink from, by what name they should be invoked or constrained to be present. Hence the origin of magic and magicians. But above all they possess the hearts of men, and are chiefly proud of this possession when they transform themselves into angels of light. Very many things that occur, therefore, are their doing, and these deeds of theirs we ought all the more carefully to shun, as we acknowledge them to be very surprising. 
and yet these very deeds forward my present arguments. For if such marvels are wrought by unclean devils, how much mightier are the holy angels? And what cannot that God do who made the angels themselves capable of working miracles? If, then, very many effects can be contrived by human art of so surprising a kind that the uninitiated think them divine, as when, for example, in a certain temple two magnets have been adjusted, one in the roof, another in the floor, so that an iron image is suspended in mid-air between them, one would suppose, by the power of the divinity, were he ignorant of the magnets above and beneath, or, as in the case of that lamp of Venus which we already mentioned as being a skilful adaptation of asbestos, if again, by the help of magicians, whom Scripture calls sorcerers and enchanters, the devils could gain such power that the noble poet Virgil should consider himself justified in describing a very powerful magician in these lines, her charms can cure what souls she please, rob other hearts of healthful ease, turn rivers backward to their source, and make the stars forget their course, and call up ghosts from night. The ground shall bellow neath your feet, the mountain ash shall quit its seat, and travel down the height. If this be so, how much more able is God to do those things which to skeptics are incredible, but to his power easy, since it is he who has given to stones and all other things their virtue, and to men their skill to use them in wonderful ways, he who has given to the angels a nature more mighty than that of all that lives on earth, he whose power surpasses all marvels, and whose wisdom in working, ordaining, and permitting, is no less marvelous in its governance of all things than in its creation of all. Chapter 7 Why, then, cannot God effect both that the bodies of the dead shall rise, and that the bodies of the damned shall be in torment in everlasting fire? God, who made the world full of countless miracles in sky, earth, air, and waters, while itself is a miracle unquestionably greater and more admirable than all the marvels it is filled with. But those with whom, or against whom, we are arguing, who believe both that there is a God who made the world, and that there are gods created by him, who administer the world's laws as his vice-regents, our adversaries, I say, who so far from denying emphatically, assert that there are powers in the world which effect marvellous results, whether of their own accord, or because they are invoked by some rite or prayer, or in some magical way, when we lay before them the wonderful properties of other things which are neither rational animals nor rational spirits, but such material objects as those we have just cited, are in the habit of replying, this is their natural property, their nature. These are the powers naturally belonging to them. Thus the whole reason why agrigentine salt dissolves in fire and crackles in water is that this is its nature. Yet this seems rather contrary to nature, which has given not to fire but to water the power of melting salt, and the power of scorching it not to water but to fire. But this, they say, is the natural property of this salt, to show effects contrary to these. The same reason, therefore, is assigned to account for that Garamantian fountain, of which one and the same runlet is chill by day and boiling by night, so that in either extreme it cannot be touched. 
so also of that other fountain which, though it is cold to the touch, and though it, like other fountains, extinguishes a lighted torch, yet unlike other fountains, and in a surprising manner, kindles an extinguished torch. So of the asbestos stone, which, though it has no heat of its own, yet when kindled by fire applied to it, cannot be extinguished. And so of the rest, which I am weary of reciting, and in which, though there seems to be an extraordinary property contrary to nature, yet no other reason is given for them than this, that this is their nature. A brief reason truly, and, I own, a satisfactory reply. But, since God is the author of all natures, how is it that our adversaries, when they refuse to believe what we affirm on the ground that it is impossible, are unwilling to accept from us a better explanation than their own, namely that this is the will of Almighty God? For certainly he is called Almighty only because he is mighty to do all he will. He who was able to create so many marvels, not only unknown, but very well ascertained, as I have been showing, and which, were they not under our own observation, or reported by recent and credible witnesses, would certainly be pronounced impossible. For as for those marvels which have no other testimony than the writers in whose books we read them, and who wrote without being divinely instructed, and are therefore liable to human error, we cannot justly blame any one who declines to believe them. For my own part, I do not wish all the marvels I have cited to be rashly accepted, for I do not myself believe them implicitly, save those which have either come under my own observation, or which any one can readily verify, such as the lime which is heated by water and cooled by oil, the magnet which by its mysterious and insensible suction attracts the iron but has no effect on a straw, the peacock's flesh which triumphs over the corruption from which not the flesh of Plato is exempt, the chaff so chilling that it prevents snow from melting, so heating that it forces apples to ripen, the glowing fire which, in accordance with its glowing appearance, whitens the stones it bakes, while, contrary to its glowing appearance, it begrimes most things it burns, just as dirty stains are made by oil, however pure it be, and as the lines drawn by white silver are black. The charcoal, too, which by the action of fire is so completely changed from its original that a finely marked piece of wood becomes hideous, the tough becomes brittle, the decaying incorruptible. Some of these things I know in common with many other persons, some of them in common with all men, and there are many others which I have not room to insert in this book. But of those which I have cited, though I have not myself seen, but only read about them, I have been unable to find trustworthy witnesses from whom I could ascertain whether they are facts, except in the case of that fountain in which burning torches are extinguished, and extinguished torches lit, and of the apples of Sodom, which are ripe to appearance, but are filled with dust. And indeed I have not met with any who said that they had seen that fountain in Epirus, but with some who knew there was a similar fountain in Gaul, not far from Grenoble. The fruit of the trees of Sodom, however, is not only spoken of in books worthy of credit, but so many persons say that they have seen it, that I cannot doubt the fact. 
but the rest of the prodigies I receive without definitely affirming or denying them, and I have cited them because I read them in the authors of our adversaries, and that I might prove how many things many among themselves believe, because they are written in the works of their own literary men, though no rational explanation of them is given, and yet they scorn to believe us when we assert that Almighty God will do what is beyond their experience and observation, and this they do even though we assign a reason for his work. For what better and stronger reason for such things can be given than to say that the Almighty is able to bring them to pass, and will bring them to pass, having predicted them in those books in which many other marvels which have already come to pass were predicted? Those things which are regarded as impossible will be accomplished according to the word and by the power of that God who predicted and effected that the incredulous nations should believe incredible wonders. Chapter 8. But if they reply that their reason for not believing us when we say that human bodies will always burn and yet never die, is that the nature of human bodies is known to be quite otherwise constituted, if they say that for this miracle we cannot give the reason which was valid in the case of those natural miracles, namely that this is the natural property, the nature of the thing, for we know that this is not the nature of human flesh, we find our answer in the sacred writings that even this human flesh was constituted in one fashion before there was sin, was constituted in fact so that it could not die, and in another fashion after sin, being made such as we see it in this miserable state of mortality, unable to retain enduring life. And so in the resurrection of the dead shall it be constituted differently from its present well-known condition. But as they do not believe these writings of ours, in which we read what nature man had in paradise, and how remote he was from the necessity of death, and indeed if they did believe them, we should of course have little trouble in debating with them the future punishment of the damned, we must produce from the writings of their own most learned authorities some instances to show that it is possible for a thing to become different from what it was formerly known characteristically to be. From the book of Marcus Varro, entitled Of the Race of the Roman People, I cite word for word the following instance. There occurred a remarkable celestial portent, for Castor records that in the brilliant star Venus, called Vesperugo by Plautus, and the lovely Hesperus by Homer, there occurred so strange a prodigy that it changed its color, size, form, course, which never happened before nor since. Adrastus of Cyzicus and Dion of Naples, famous mathematicians, said that this occurred in the reign of Agages. So great an author as Varro would certainly not have called this a portent had it not seemed to be contrary to nature. For we say that all portents are contrary to nature, but they are not so. For how is that contrary to nature which happens by the will of God, since the will of so mighty a creator is certainly the nature of each created thing? A portent, therefore, happens not contrary to nature, but contrary to what we know as nature. But who can number the multitude of portents recorded in profane histories? Let us then at present fix our attention on this one only which concerns the matter in hand. What is there so arranged by the author of the nature of heaven and earth as the exactly ordered course of the stars? 
What is there established by laws so sure and inflexible? And yet, when it pleased him, who with sovereignty and supreme power regulates all he has created, a star conspicuous among the rest, by its size and splendor, changed its color, size, form, and, most wonderful of all, the order and law of its course. Certainly that phenomenon disturbed the canons of the astronomers, if there were any then, by which they tabulate, as by unerring computation, the past and future movements of the stars, so as to take upon them to affirm that this which happened to the morning star, Venus, never happened before nor since. But we read in the divine books that even the sun itself stood still when a holy man, Joshua, the son of Nun, had begged this from God until victory should finish the battle he had begun, and that it even went back that the promise of fifteen years added to the life of King Hezekiah might be sealed by this additional prodigy. But these miracles, which were vouchsafed to the merits of holy men, even when our adversaries believe them, they attribute to the magical arts. So Virgil, in the lines I quoted above, ascribes to magic the power to turn rivers backward to their source, and make the stars forget their course. For in our sacred books we read that this also happened, that a river turned backward was stayed above while the lower part flowed on, when the people passed over under the above-mentioned leader, Joshua the son of Nun, and also when Elias the prophet crossed, and afterwards when his disciple Elisha passed through it. And we have just mentioned how, in the case of King Hezekiah, the greatest of the stars forgot its course. But what happened to Venus, according to Varro, was not said by him to have happened in answer to any man's prayer. Let not the skeptics then benight themselves in this knowledge of the nature of things, as if divine power cannot bring to pass in an object anything else than what their own experience has shown them to be in its nature. Even the very things which are most commonly known as natural would not be less wonderful nor less effectual to excite surprise in all who beheld them if men were not accustomed to admire nothing but what is rare. For who that thoughtfully observes the countless multitude of men and their similarity of nature can fail to remark with surprise and admiration the individuality of each man's appearance, suggesting to us, as it does, that unless men were like one another they would not be distinguished from the rest of the animals, while unless, on the other hand, they were unlike, they could not be distinguished from one another, so that those whom we declare to be like we also find to be unlike? and the unlikeness is the more wonderful consideration of the two, for a common nature seems rather to require similarity. And yet, because the very rarity of things is that which makes them wonderful, we are filled with much greater wonder when we are introduced to two men so like that we either always or frequently mistake in endeavoring to distinguish between them. But possibly, though Varro is a heathen historian and a very learned one, they may disbelieve that what I have cited from him truly occurred, or they may say the example is invalid because the star did not for any length of time continue to follow its new course but return to its ordinary orbit. 
There is, then, another phenomenon at present open to their observation, and which, in my opinion, ought to be sufficient to convince them that though they have observed and ascertained some natural law, they ought not on that account to prescribe to God, as if he could not change and turn it into something very different from what they have observed. The land of Sodom was not always as it now is, but once it had the appearance of other lands, and enjoyed equal, if not richer, fertility. For in the divine narrative it was compared to the paradise of God. But after it was touched by fire from heaven, as even pagan history testifies, and as is now witnessed by those who visit the spot, it became unnaturally and horribly sooty in appearance, and its apples, under a deceitful appearance of ripeness, contain ashes within. Here is a thing which was of one kind, and is of another. You see how its nature was converted by the wonderful transmutation wrought by the Creator of all natures into so very disgusting a diversity, an alteration which after so long a time took place, and after so long a time still continues. As, therefore, it was not impossible to God to create such natures as He pleased, so it is not impossible to Him to change these natures of His own creation into whatever He pleases, and thus spread abroad a multitude of those marvels which are called monsters, portents, prodigies, phenomena, and which, if I were minded to cite and record, what end would there be to this work? They say that they are called monsters because they demonstrate or signify something portents because they portend something, and so forth. But let their diviners see how they are either deceived, or even when they do predict true things, it is because they are inspired by spirits who are intent upon entangling the minds of men, worthy indeed of such a fate, in the meshes of a hurtful curiosity, or how they light now and then upon some truth, because they make so many predictions. Yet for our part these things which happen contrary to nature, and are said to be contrary to nature, as the Apostle, speaking after the manner of men, says that to graft the wild olive into the good olive, and to partake of its fatness, is contrary to nature, and are called monsters, phenomena, portents, prodigies, ought to demonstrate, portend, predict, that God will bring to pass what he has foretold regarding the bodies of men, no difficulty preventing him, no law of nature prescribing to him his limit. How he has foretold what he is to do, I think I have sufficiently shown in the preceding book, culling from the sacred scriptures both of the New and Old Testaments, not indeed all the passages that relate to this, but as many as I judged to suffice for this work. Chapter 9 so then, what God by his prophet has said of the everlasting punishment of the damned shall come to pass, shall without fail come to pass, their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched. In order to impress this upon us most forcibly, the Lord Jesus himself, when ordering us to cut off our members, meaning thereby those persons whom a man loves as the most useful members of his body, says, it is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and their fire is not quenched. Similarly of the foot. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. 
so too of the eye. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. He did not shrink from using the same words three times over in one passage. And who is not terrified by this repetition and by the threat of that punishment uttered so vehemently by the lips of the Lord himself? Now they who would refer both the fire and the worm to the spirit and not to the body affirm that the wicked who are separated from the kingdom of God shall be burned, as it were, by the anguish of a spirit repenting too late and fruitlessly, and they contend that fire is therefore not inappropriately used to express this burning torment, as when the apostle exclaims, Who is offended, and I burn not? The worm, too, they think, is to be similarly understood. For it is written, they say, As the moth consumes the garment, and the worm the wood, so does grief consume the heart of a man. But they who make no doubt that in that future punishment both body and soul shall suffer, affirm that the body shall be burned with fire, while the soul shall be, as it were, gnawed by a worm of anguish. Though this view is more reasonable, for it is absurd to suppose that either body or soul will escape pain in the future punishment, yet for my own part I find it easier to understand both as referring to the body than to suppose that neither does and I think that Scripture is silent regarding the spiritual pain of the damned, because, though not expressed, it is necessarily understood that in a body thus tormented the soul also is tortured with a fruitless repentance. For we read in the ancient Scriptures, the vengeance of the flesh of the ungodly is fire and worms. It might have been more briefly said, the vengeance of the ungodly, why then was it said, the flesh of the ungodly, unless because both the fire and the worm are to be the punishment of the flesh? Or if the object of the writer in saying, the vengeance of the flesh, was to indicate that this shall be the punishment of those who live after the flesh, for this leads to the second death, as the apostle intimated when he said, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die, let each one make his own choice, either assigning the fire to the body and the worm to the soul, the one figuratively, the other really, or assigning both really to the body. For I have already sufficiently made out that animals can live in the fire, in burning without being consumed, in pain without dying, by a miracle of the most omnipotent Creator, to whom no one can deny that this is possible, if he be not ignorant by whom has been made all that is wonderful in all nature. For it is God himself who has wrought all these miracles, great and small, in this world which I have mentioned, and incomparably more which I have omitted, and who has enclosed these marvels in this world, itself the greatest miracle of all. Let each man, then, choose which he will, whether he thinks that the worm is real and pertains to the body, or that spiritual things are meant by bodily representations, and that it belongs to the soul. But which of these is true will be more readily discovered by the facts themselves, when there shall be in the saints such knowledge as shall not require that their own experience teach them the nature of these punishments, but as shall, by its own fullness and perfection, suffice to instruct them in this matter. For now we know in part, until that which is perfect is come, only this we believe about those future bodies, that they shall be such as shall certainly be pained by the fire.
chapter 10. Here arises the question, if the fire is not to be immaterial, analogous to the pain of the soul, but material, burning by contact, so that bodies may be tormented in it, how can evil spirits be punished in it? For it is undoubtedly the same fire which is to serve for the punishment of men and of devils, according to the words of Christ, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Unless, perhaps, as learned men have thought, the devils have a kind of body made of that dense and humid air which we feel strikes us when the wind is blowing. And if this kind of substance could not be affected by fire, it could not burn when heated in the baths. For in order to burn, it is first burned and affects other things as itself is affected. But if any one maintains that the devils have no bodies, this is not a matter either to be laboriously investigated or to be debated with keenness. For why may we not assert that even immaterial spirits may, in some extraordinary way, yet really be pained by the punishment of material fire, if the spirits of men, which also are certainly immaterial, are both now contained in material members of the body, and in the world to come, shall be indissolubly united to their own bodies? Therefore, though the devils have no bodies, yet their spirits, that is, the devils themselves, shall be brought into thorough contact with the material fires to be tormented by them, not that the fires themselves with which they are brought into contact shall be animated by their connection with these spirits, and become animals composed of body and spirit, but, as I said, this junction will be effected in a wonderful and ineffable way, so that they shall receive pain from the fires, but give no life to them. And, in truth, this other mode of union, by which bodies and spirits are bound together and become animals, is thoroughly marvellous and beyond the comprehension of man, though this it is which is man. I would indeed say that these spirits will burn without any body of their own, as that rich man was burning in hell when he exclaimed, I am tormented in this flame, were I not aware that it is aptly said in reply that that flame was of the same nature as the eyes he raised and fixed on Lazarus, as the tongue on which he entreated that a little cooling water might be dropped, or as the finger of Lazarus with which he asked that this might be done, all of which took place where souls exist without bodies. Thus, therefore, both that flame in which he burned and that drop he begged were immaterial, and resembled the visions of sleepers or persons in an ecstasy, to whom immaterial objects appear in a bodily form. For the man himself, who is in such a state, though it be in spirit only, not in body, yet sees himself so like to his own body that he cannot discern any difference whatever. But that hell, which also is called a lake of fire and brimstone, will be material fire, and will torment the bodies of the damned, whether men or devils, the solid bodies of the one, aerial bodies of the others, or, if only men have bodies as well as souls, yet the evil spirits, though without bodies, shall be so connected with the bodily fires as to receive pain without imparting life. One fire certainly shall be the lot of both, for thus the truth has declared. Chapter 11 some, however, of those against whom we are defending the city of God, think it unjust that any man be doomed to an eternal punishment for sins which, no matter how great they were, were perpetrated in a brief space of time, 
as if any law ever regulated the duration of the punishment by the duration of the offense punished. Cicero tells us that the laws recognize eight kinds of penalty, damages, imprisonment, scourging, reparation, disgrace, exile, death, slavery. Is there any one of these which may be compressed into a brevity proportioned to the rapid commission of the offense, so that no longer time may be spent in its punishment than in its perpetration, unless perhaps reparation? For this requires that the offender suffer what he did, as that clause of the law says, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. For certainly it is possible for an offender to lose his eye by the severity of legal retaliation in as brief a time as he deprived another of his eye by the cruelty of his own lawlessness. But if scourging be a reasonable penalty for kissing another man's wife, is not the fault of an instant visited with long hours of atonement and the momentary delight punished with lasting pain? What shall we say of imprisonment? Must the criminal be confined only for so long a time as he spent on the offense for which he is committed? Or is not a penalty of many years' confinement imposed on the slave who has provoked his master with a word, or who has struck him with a blow that is quickly over? And as to damages, disgrace, exile, slavery, which are commonly inflicted so as to admit of no relaxation or pardon, do not these resemble eternal punishments in so far as this short life allows a resemblance? For they are not eternal only because the life in which they are endured is not eternal, and yet the crimes which are punished with these most protracted sufferings are perpetrated in a very brief space of time. Nor is there any one who would suppose that the pains of punishment should occupy as short a time as the offense, or that murder, adultery, sacrilege, or any other crime should be measured not by the enormity of the injury or wickedness, but by the length of time spent in its perpetration. Then as to the award of death for any great crime, do the laws reckon the punishment to consist in the brief moment in which death is inflicted, or in this, that the offender is eternally banished from the society of the living? And just as the punishment of the first death cuts men off from this present mortal city, so does the punishment of the second death cut men off from that future immortal city. For as the laws of this present city do not provide for the executed criminal's return to it, so neither is he who is condemned to the second death recalled again to life everlasting. But if temporal sin is visited with eternal punishment, how then, they say, is that true which your Christ says, With the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again? And they do not observe that the same measure refers not to an equal space of time, but to the retribution of evil, or, in other words, to the law by which he who has done evil suffers evil. Besides, these words could be appropriately understood as referring to the matter of which our Lord was speaking when he used them, namely, judgments and condemnation. Thus, if he who unjustly judges and condemns is himself justly judged and condemned, he receives with the same measure, though not the same thing as he gave. For judgment he gave, and judgment he receives, though the judgment he gave was unjust, the judgment he receives, just. Chapter 12. 
But eternal punishment seems hard and unjust to human perceptions, because in the weakness of our mortal condition there is wanting that highest and purest wisdom by which it can be perceived how great a wickedness was committed in that first transgression. The more enjoyment man found in God, the greater was his wickedness in abandoning him, and he who destroyed in himself a good which might have been eternal became worthy of eternal evil. Hence the whole mass of the human race is condemned, for he who at first gave entrance to sin has been punished with all his posterity who were in him as in a root, so that no one is exempt from this just and due punishment unless delivered by mercy and undeserved grace. And the human race is so apportioned that in some is displayed the efficacy of merciful grace, in the rest the efficacy of just retribution." for both could not be displayed in all, for if all had remained under the punishment of just condemnation, there would have been seen in no one the mercy of redeeming grace. And, on the other hand, if all had been transferred from darkness to light, the severity of retribution would have been manifested in none. But many more are left under punishment than are delivered from it, in order that it may thus be shown what was due to all." and, had it been inflicted on all, no one could justly have found fault with the justice of him who taketh vengeance. Whereas, in the deliverance of so many from that just award, there is cause to render the most cordial thanks to the gratuitous bounty of him who delivers. Chapter 13 The Platonists, indeed, while they maintain that no sins are unpunished, suppose that all punishment is administered for remedial purposes, be it inflicted by human or divine law, in this life or after death. For a man may be scatheless here, or, though punished, may yet not amend. Hence that passage of Virgil, where, when he had said of our earthly bodies and mortal members that our souls derive, hence wild desires and groveling fears, and human laughter, human tears, immured in dungeon-seeming night, they look abroad, yet see no light goes on to say, Nay, when at last the life has fled, and left the body cold and dead, e'en then there passes not away the painful heritage of clay. Full many a long-contracted stain perforce must linger deep in grain. So penal sufferings they endure for ancient crime to make them pure. Some hang aloft in open view, for winds to pierce them through and through, while others purge their guilt deep-dyed in burning fire or whelming tide. They who are of this opinion would have all punishments after death to be purgatorial, and as the elements of air, fire, and water are superior to earth, one or other of these may be the instrument of expiating and purging away the stain contracted by the contagion of earth. So Virgil hints at the air in the words, Some hang aloft for winds to pierce, at the water in whelming tide, and at fire in the expression in burning fire. For our part we recognize that even in this life some punishments are purgatorial, not indeed to those whose life is none the better, but rather the worse for them, but to those who are constrained by them to amend their life. All other punishments, whether temporal or eternal, inflicted as they are on every one by divine providence, are sent either on account of past sins, or of sins presently allowed in the life, or to exercise and reveal a man's graces. 
they may be inflicted by the instrumentality of bad men and angels as well as of the good. For even if any one suffers some hurt through another's wickedness or mistake, the man indeed sins whose ignorance or injustice does the harm, but God, who by his just though hidden judgment permits it to be done, sins not. But temporary punishments are suffered by some in this life only, by others after death, by others both now and then, but all of them before that last and strictest judgment. But of those who suffer temporary punishments after death, all are not doomed to those everlasting pains which are to follow that judgment. For to some, as we have already said, what is not remitted in this world is remitted in the next, that is, they are not punished with the eternal punishment of the world to come. Chapter 14 Quite exceptional are those who are not punished in this life, but only afterwards. Yet that there have been some who have reached the decrepitude of age without experiencing even the slightest sickness, and who have had uninterrupted enjoyment of life, I know both from report and from my own observation. However, the very life we mortals lead is itself all punishment, for it is all temptation, as the Scriptures declare, where it is written, Is not the life of man upon earth a temptation? For ignorance is itself no slight punishment, or want of culture, which it is with justice thought so necessary to escape, that boys are compelled under pain of severe punishment to learn trades or letters, and the learning to which they are driven by punishment is itself so much of a punishment to them that they sometimes prefer the pain that drives them to the pain to which they are driven by it. And who would not shrink from the alternative and elect to die if it were proposed to him either to suffer death or to be again an infant? Our infancy indeed introducing us to this life not with laughter but with tears seems unconsciously to predict the ills we are to encounter. Zoroaster alone is said to have laughed when he was born, and that unnatural omen portended no good to him, for he is said to have been the inventor of magical arts, though indeed they were unable to secure to him even the poor felicity of this present life against the assaults of his enemies. For himself king of the Bactrians, he was conquered by Ninus king of the Assyrians. In short, the words of Scripture, and heavy yoke is upon the sons of Adam from the day that they go out of their mother's womb till the day that they return to the mother of all things. These words so infallibly find fulfillment that even the little ones, who by the labor of regeneration have been freed from the bond of original sin in which alone they were held, yet suffer many ills, and in some instances are even exposed to the assaults of evil spirits. But let us not for a moment suppose that this suffering is prejudicial to their future happiness, even though it has so increased as to sever soul from body and to terminate their life in that early age. Chapter 15 Nevertheless, in the heavy yoke that is laid upon the sons of Adam from the day that they go out of their mother's womb to the day that they return to the mother of all things, there is found an admirable though painful monitor teaching us to be sober-minded, and convincing us that this life has become penal 
in consequence of that outrageous wickedness which was perpetrated in paradise, and that all to which the New Testament invites belongs to that future inheritance which awaits us in the world to come, and is offered for our acceptance, as the earnest that we may, in its own due time, obtain that of which it is the pledge. Now, therefore, let us walk in hope, and let us by the Spirit mortify the deeds of the flesh, and so make progress from day to day. For the Lord knoweth them that are his, and as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God, but by grace, not by nature. For there is but one Son of God by nature, who in his compassion became Son of Man for our sakes, that we, by nature sons of men, might by grace become through him sons of God. For he, abiding unchangeable, took upon him our nature, that thereby he might take us to himself. And, holding fast his own divinity, he became partaker of our infirmity, that we, being changed into some better thing, might, by participating in his righteousness and immortality, lose our own properties of sin and mortality, and preserve whatever good quality he had implanted in our nature, perfected now by sharing in the goodness of his nature. For as by the sin of one man we have fallen into a misery so deplorable, so by the righteousness of one man, who also is God, shall we come to a blessedness inconceivably exalted. Nor ought any one to trust that he has passed from the one man to the other, until he shall have reached that place where there is no temptation, and have entered into the peace which he seeks in the many and various conflicts of this war, in which the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Now such a war as this would have had no existence if human nature had, in the exercise of free will, continued steadfast in the uprightness in which it was created. But now in its misery it makes war upon itself, because in its blessedness it would not continue at peace with God. And this, though it be a miserable calamity, is better than the earlier stages of this life, which do not recognize that a war is to be maintained. For better is it to contend with vices than without conflict to be subdued by them. Better, I say, is war with the hope of peace everlasting than captivity without any thought of deliverance. We long, indeed, for the cessation of this war, and, kindled by the flame of divine love, we burn for entrance on that well-ordered peace in which whatever is inferior is forever subordinated to what is above it. But if, which God forbid, there had been no hope of so blessed a consummation, we should still have preferred to endure the hardness of this conflict, rather than, by our non-resistance, to yield ourselves to the dominion of vice. Chapter 16 But such is God's mercy towards the vessels of mercy which he has prepared for glory, that even the first age of man, that is, infancy, which submits without any resistance to the flesh, and the second age, which is called boyhood, and which has not yet understanding enough to undertake this warfare, and therefore yields to almost every vicious pleasure, because, though this age has the power of speech, and may therefore seem to have passed infancy, the mind is still too weak to comprehend the commandment. 
Yet, if either of these ages has received the sacraments of the Mediator, then, although the present life be immediately brought to an end, the child, having been translated from the power of darkness to the kingdom of Christ, shall not only be saved from eternal punishments, but shall not even suffer purgatorial torments after death. For spiritual regeneration of itself suffices to prevent any evil consequences resulting after death from the connection with death which carnal generation forms. But when we reach that age which can now comprehend the commandment and submit to the dominion of law, we must declare war upon vices and wage this war keenly, lest we be landed in damnable sins. And if vices have not gathered strength by habitual victory, they are more easily overcome and subdued. But if they have been used to conquer and rule, it is only with difficulty and labor they are mastered. And indeed this victory cannot be sincerely and truly gained but by delighting in true righteousness, and it is faith in Christ that gives this. For if the law be present with its command, and the Spirit be absent with his help, the presence of the prohibition serves only to increase the desire to sin, and adds the guilt of transgression. Sometimes, indeed, patent vices are overcome by other and hidden vices, which are reckoned virtues, though pride and a kind of ruinous self-sufficiency are their informing principles. Accordingly, vices are then only to be considered overcome when they are conquered by the love of God, which God himself alone gives, and which he gives only through the mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who became a partaker of our mortality, that he might make us partakers of his divinity. But few indeed are they who are so happy as to have passed their youth without committing any damnable sins, either by dissolute or violent conduct, or by following some godless and unlawful opinions, but have subdued by their greatness of soul everything in them which could make them the slaves of carnal pleasures the greater number having first become transgressors of the law that they have received, and having allowed vice to have the ascendancy in them, then flee to grace for help, and so, by a penitence more bitter, and a struggle more violent than it would otherwise have been, they subdue the soul to God, and thus give it its lawful authority over the flesh, and become victors. Whoever, therefore, desires to escape eternal punishment, let him not only be baptized, but also justified in Christ, and so let him in truth pass from the devil to Christ. And let him not fancy that there are any purgatorial pains except before that final and dreadful judgment. We must not, however, deny that even the eternal fire will be proportioned to the deserts of the wicked, so that to some it will be more, and to others less painful, whether this result be accomplished by a variation in the temperature of the fire itself, graduated according to everyone's merit, or whether it be that the heat remains the same, but that all do not feel it with equal intensity of torment. Chapter 17 I must now, I see, enter the lists of amicable controversy with those tender-hearted Christians who decline to believe that any, or that all, of those whom the infallibly just judge may pronounce worthy of the punishment of hell shall suffer eternally, 
and who suppose that they shall be delivered after a fixed term of punishment, longer or shorter, according to the amount of each man's sin. In respect of this matter, Origen was even more indulgent, for he believed that even the devil himself and his angels, after suffering those more severe and prolonged pains which their sins deserved, should be delivered from their torments and associated with the holy angels. But the church, not without reason, condemned him for this and other errors, especially for his theory of the ceaseless alternation of happiness and misery, and the interminable transitions from the one state to the other at fixed periods of ages. For in this theory he lost even the credit of being merciful by allotting to the saints real miseries for the expiation of their sins and false happiness which brought them no true and secure joy, that is, no fearless assurance of eternal blessedness. Very different, however, is the error we speak of which is dictated by the tenderness of these Christians who suppose that the sufferings of those who are condemned in the judgment will be temporary, while the blessedness of all who are sooner or later set free will be eternal. Which opinion, if it is good and true because it is merciful, will be so much the better and truer in proportion as it becomes more merciful. Let, then, this fountain of mercy be extended, and flow forth even to the lost angels, and let them also be set free, at least after as many and long ages as seem fit. Why does this stream of mercy flow to all the human race, and dry up as soon as it reaches the angelic? And yet they dare not extend their pity further, and propose the deliverance of the devil himself. Or, if any one is bold enough to do so, he does indeed put to shame their charity, but is himself convicted of error that is more unsightly, and arresting of God's truth that is more perverse, in proportion as his clemency of sentiment seems to be greater. CHAPTER Eighteen. There are others, again, with whose opinions I have become acquainted in conversation, who, though they seem to reverence the holy scriptures, are yet of reprehensible life, and who, accordingly, in their own interest, attribute to God a still greater compassion towards men. For they acknowledge that it is truly predicted in the divine word that the wicked and unbelieving are worthy of punishment, but they assert that when the judgment comes, mercy will prevail. For, say they, God, having compassion on them, will give them up to the prayers and intercessions of his saints. For if the saints used to pray for them when they suffered from their cruel hatred, how much more will they do so when they see them prostrate and humble suppliants? For we cannot, they say, believe that the saints shall lose their bowels of compassion when they have attained the most perfect and complete holiness so that they who, when still sinners, prayed for their enemies, should now, when they are freed from sin, withhold from interceding for their suppliants? Or shall God refuse to listen to so many of his beloved children, when their holiness has purged their prayers of all hindrance to his answering them? And the passage of the psalm which is cited by those who admit that wicked men and infidels shall be punished for a long time, though in the end delivered from all sufferings, is claimed also by the persons we are now speaking of as making much more for them. The verse runs, Shall God forget to be gracious? Shall he in anger shut up his tender mercies? 
His anger, they say, would condemn all that are unworthy of everlasting happiness to endless punishment, but if he suffer them to be punished for a long time, or even at all, must he not shut up his tender mercies, which the psalmist implies he will not do? For he does not say, Shall he in anger shut up his tender mercies for a long period? But he implies that he will not shut them up at all. And they deny that thus God's threat of judgment is proved to be false, even though he condemn no man, any more than we can say that his threat to overthrow Nineveh was false, though the destruction which was absolutely predicted was not accomplished. For he did not say, Nineveh shall be overthrown if they do not repent and amend their ways, but without any such condition he foretold that the city should be overthrown. And this prediction, they maintain, was true because God predicted the punishment which they deserved, although he was not to inflict it. For though he spared them on their repentance, yet he was certainly aware that they would repent, and, notwithstanding, absolutely and definitely predicted that the city should be overthrown. This was true, they say, in the truth of severity, because they were worthy of it. But in respect of the compassion which checked his anger, so that he spared the suppliants from the punishment with which he had threatened the rebellious, it was not true. If, then, he spared those whom his own holy prophet was provoked at his sparing, how much more shall he spare those more wretched suppliants, for whom all his saints shall intercede? And they suppose that this conjecture of theirs is not hinted at in Scripture for the sake of stimulating many to reformation of life through fear of very protracted or eternal sufferings, and of stimulating others to pray for those who have not reformed. However, they think that the divine oracles are not altogether silent on this point, for they ask to what purpose is it said, How great is thy goodness which thou hast hidden for them that fear thee, if it be not to teach us that the great and hidden sweetness of God's mercy is concealed in order that men may fear. To the same purpose they think the apostles said, For God hath concluded all men in unbelief, that he may have mercy upon all, signifying that no one should be condemned by God. And yet they who hold this opinion do not extend it to the acquittal or liberation of the devil and his angels. Their human tenderness is moved only towards men, and they plead chiefly their own cause, holding out false hopes of impunity to their own depraved lives by means of this quasi-compassion of God to the whole race. Consequently, they who promise this impunity even to the prince of the devils and his satellites make a still fuller exhibition of the mercy of God. Chapter 19 So, too, there are others who promise this deliverance from eternal punishment not indeed to all men, but only to those who have been washed in Christian baptism and who become partakers of the body of Christ, no matter how they have lived, or what heresy or impiety they have fallen into. They ground this opinion on the saying of Jesus, This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that if any man eat thereof he shall not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If a man eat of this bread he shall live for ever. 
Therefore, say they, it follows that these persons must be delivered from death eternal, and at one time or other be introduced to everlasting life. Chapter 20 There are others still who make this promise not even to all who have received the sacraments of the baptism of Christ and of his body, but only to the Catholics, however badly they have lived. For these have eaten the body of Christ not only sacramentally, but really, being incorporated in his body, as the Apostle says, We, being many, are one bread, one body, so that, though they have afterwards lapsed into some heresy, or even into heathenism and idolatry, yet by virtue of this one thing, that they have received the baptism of Christ, and eaten the body of Christ, in the body of Christ, that is to say, in the Catholic Church, they shall not die eternally, but at one time or other obtain eternal life, and all that wickedness of theirs shall not avail to make their punishment eternal, but only proportionately long and severe. Chapter 21 There are some, too, who found upon the expression of Scripture, He that endureth to the end shall be saved, and who promise salvation only to those who continue in the church Catholic, and though such persons have lived badly, yet, say they, they shall be saved as by fire through virtue of the foundation, of which the Apostle says, For other foundation hath no man laid than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day of the Lord shall declare it, for it shall be revealed by fire, and each man's work shall be proved of what sort it is. If any man's work shall endure which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. But if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire." They say accordingly that the Catholic Christian, no matter what his life be, has Christ as his foundation, while this foundation is not possessed by any heresy which is separated from the unity of his body. And therefore, through virtue of this foundation, even though the Catholic Christian, by the inconsistency of his life, has been as one building up wood, hay, stubble upon it, they believe that he shall be saved by fire, in other words, that he shall be delivered after tasting the pain of that fire to which the wicked shall be condemned at the last judgment. Chapter 22 I have also met with some who are of opinion that such only as neglect to cover their sins with alms-deeds shall be punished in everlasting fire, and they cite the words of the Apostle James, he shall have judgment without mercy who hath shown no mercy. Therefore, say they, he who has not amended his ways, but yet has intermingled his profligate and wicked actions with works of mercy, shall receive mercy in the judgment, so that he shall either quite escape condemnation, or shall be liberated from his doom after some time shorter or longer. They suppose that this was the reason why the judge himself of quick and dead declined to mention anything else than works of mercy done or omitted when awarding to those on his right hand life eternal and to those on his left everlasting punishment. 
To the same purpose, they say, is the daily petition we make in the Lord's Prayer, Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. For no doubt whoever pardons the person who has wronged him does a charitable action. And this has been so highly commended by the Lord himself that he says, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And so it is to this kind of alms-deeds that the saying of the Apostle James refers, He shall have judgment without mercy that hath shown no mercy. And our Lord, they say, made no distinction of great and small sins, but your Father will forgive your sins if ye forgive men theirs. Consequently, they conclude that though a man has led an abandoned life up to the last day of it, yet whatsoever his sins have been, they are all remitted by virtue of this daily prayer, if only he has been mindful to attend to this one thing, that when they who have done him any injury ask his pardon, he forgive them from his heart. When by God's help I have replied to all these errors, I shall conclude this twenty-first book. Chapter 23. First of all, it behooves us to inquire and to recognize why the Church has not been able to tolerate the idea that promises cleansing or indulgence to the devil even after the most severe and protracted punishment. For so many holy men, imbued with the spirit of the Old and New Testament, did not grudge to angels of any rank or character that they should enjoy the blessedness of the heavenly kingdom after being cleansed by suffering, but rather they perceived that they could not invalidate nor evacuate the divine sentence which the Lord predicted that he would pronounce in the judgment, saying, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For here it is evident that the devil and his angels shall burn in everlasting fire. And there is also that declaration in the Apocalypse, The devil their deceiver was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where also are the beast and the false prophet, and they shall be tormented day and night for ever. In the former passage everlasting is used, in the latter for ever, and by these words Scripture is wont to mean nothing else than endless duration. And therefore no other reason, no reason more obvious and just, can be found for holding it as the fixed and immovable belief of the truest piety that the devil and his angels shall never return to the justice and life of the saints than that Scripture, which deceives no man, says that God spared them not, and that they were condemned beforehand by him, and cast into prisons of darkness in hell, being reserved to the judgment of the last day, when eternal fire shall receive them, in which they shall be tormented, world without end. And if this be so, how can it be believed that all men, or even some, shall be withdrawn from the endurance of punishment after some time has been spent in it? How can this be believed without enervating our faith in the eternal punishment of the devils? For if all or some of those to whom it shall be said, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, are not to be always in that fire, then what reason is there for believing that the devil and his angels shall always be there? 
or is perhaps the sentence of God, which is to be pronounced on wicked men and angels alike, to be true in the case of the angels, false in that of men? Plainly it will be so if the conjectures of men are to weigh more than the word of God. But because this is absurd, they who desire to be rid of eternal punishment ought to abstain from arguing against God, and rather, while yet there is opportunity, obey the divine commands. Then what a fond fancy is it to suppose that eternal punishment means long-continued punishment, while eternal life means life without end, since Christ in the very same passage spoke of both in similar terms in one and the same sentence, These shall go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. If both destinies are eternal, then we must either understand both as long-continued, but at last terminating, or both as endless. For they are correlative, on the one hand punishment eternal, on the other hand life eternal. And to say in one and the same sense life eternal shall be endless, punishment eternal shall come to an end, is the height of absurdity. Wherefore, as the eternal life of the saints shall be endless, so too the eternal punishment of those who are doomed to it shall have no end. Chapter 24 And this reasoning is equally conclusive against those who, in their own interest, but under the guise of a greater tenderness of spirit, attempt to invalidate the words of God, and who assert that these words are true, not because men shall suffer those things which are threatened by God, but because they deserve to suffer them. For God, they say, will yield them to the prayers of his saints, who will then the more earnestly pray for their enemies, as they shall be more perfect in holiness, and whose prayers will be the more efficacious and the more worthy of God's ear, because now purged from all sin whatsoever. Why, then, if in that perfected holiness their prayers be so pure and all-availing, Will they not use them in behalf of the angels for whom eternal fire is prepared, that God may mitigate his sentence and alter it and extricate them from that fire? Or will there perhaps be someone hardy enough to affirm that even the holy angels will make common cause with holy men, then become the equals of God's angels, and will intercede for the guilty, both men and angels, that mercy may spare them the punishment which truth has pronounced them to deserve. But this has been asserted by no one sound in the faith, nor will be. Otherwise there is no reason why the church should not even now pray for the devil and his angels, since God her master has ordered her to pray for her enemies. The reason, then, which prevents the church from now praying for the wicked angels, whom she knows to be her enemies, is the identical reason which shall prevent her, however perfected in holiness, from praying at the last judgment for those men who are to be punished in eternal fire. At present she prays for her enemies among men, because they have yet opportunity for fruitful repentance. For what does she especially beg for them, but that God would grant them repentance, as the Apostle says, that they may return to soberness out of the snare of the devil, by whom they are held captive according to his will? But if the church were certified who those are, who, though they are still abiding in this life, are yet predestinated to go with the devil into eternal fire, 
than for them she could no more pray than for him. But since she has this certainty regarding no man, she prays for all her enemies who yet live in this world, and yet she is not heard in behalf of all. But she is heard in the case of those only who, though they oppose the church, are yet predestinated to become her sons through her intercession. But if any retain an impenitent heart until death, and are not converted from enemies into sons, does the church continue to pray for them, for the spirits, that is, of such persons deceased? And why does she cease to pray for them, unless because the man who was not translated into Christ's kingdom while he was in the body is now judged to be of Satan's following? It is then, I say, the same reason which prevents the church at any time from praying for the wicked angels, which prevents her from praying hereafter for those men who are to be punished in eternal fire. And this also is the reason why, though she prays even for the wicked so long as they live, she yet does not, even in this world, pray for the unbelieving and godless who are dead. For some of the dead, indeed, the prayer of the church or of pious individuals is heard, but it is for those who, having been regenerated in Christ, did not spend their life so wickedly that they can be judged unworthy of such compassion, nor so well that they can be considered to have no need of it. As also, after the resurrection, there will be some of the dead to whom, after they have endured the pains proper to the spirits of the dead, mercy shall be accorded, and acquittal from the punishment of the eternal fire. For were there not some whose sins, though not remitted in this life, shall be remitted in that which is to come, it could not be truly said, they shall not be forgiven, neither in this world, neither in that which is to come. But when the judge of quick and dead has said, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, and to those on the other side, Depart from me, ye cursed, into the eternal fire which is prepared for the devil and his angels, and these shall go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It were excessively presumptuous to say that the punishment of any of those whom God has said shall go away into eternal punishment shall not be eternal, and so bring either despair or doubt upon the corresponding promise of life eternal. Let no man then so understand the words of the psalmist, Shall God forget to be gracious? Shall he shut up in his anger his tender mercies, as if the sentence of God were true of good men, false of bad men, or true of good men and wicked angels, but false of bad men? For the psalmist's words refer to the vessels of mercy and the children of the promise, of whom the prophet himself was one. For when he had said, Shall God forget to be gracious, shall he shut up in his anger his tender mercies, and then immediately subjoins, And I said, Now I begin, this is the change wrought by the right hand of the Most High. He manifestly explained what he meant by the words, Shall he shut up in his anger his tender mercies. For God's anger is this mortal life, in which man is made like to vanity, and his days pass as a shadow. Yet in this anger God does not forget to be gracious, 
causing his sun to shine and his rain to descend on the just and the unjust. And thus he does not in his anger cut short his tender mercies, and especially in what the psalmist speaks of in the words, Now I begin, this change is from the right hand of the Most High. For he changes for the better the vessels of mercy, even while they are still in this most wretched life, which is God's anger, and even while his anger is manifesting itself in this miserable corruption. For in his anger he does not shut up his tender mercies. And since the truth of this divine canticle is quite satisfied by this application of it, there is no need to give it a reference to that place in which those who do not belong to the city of God are punished in eternal fire. But if any persist in extending its application to the torments of the wicked, let them at least understand it, so that the anger of God, which has threatened the wicked with eternal punishment, shall abide, but shall be mixed with mercy to the extent of alleviating the torments which might justly be inflicted, so that the wicked shall neither wholly escape nor only for a time endure these threatened pains, but that they shall be less severe and more endurable than they deserve. Thus the anger of God shall continue, and at the same time he will not in this anger shut up his tender mercies. But even this hypothesis I am not to be supposed to affirm, because I do not positively oppose it. As for those who find an empty threat rather than a truth in such passages as these, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, and these shall go away into eternal punishment, and they shall be tormented for ever and ever, and their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched. Such persons, I say, are most emphatically and abundantly refuted, not by me so much as by the divine scripture itself. For the men of Nineveh repented in this life, and therefore their repentance was fruitful, inasmuch as they sowed in that field which the Lord meant to be sown in tears, that it might afterwards be reaped in joy. And yet who will deny that God's prediction was fulfilled in their case, if at least he observes that God destroys sinners not only in anger, but also in compassion? For sinners are destroyed in two ways. Either, like the Sodomites, the men themselves are punished for their sins, or, like the Ninevites, the men's sins are destroyed by repentance. God's prediction, therefore, was fulfilled. The wicked Nineveh was overthrown, and a good Nineveh built up. For its walls and houses remained standing, the city was overthrown in its depraved manners. And thus, though the prophet was provoked that the destruction which the inhabitants dreaded because of his prediction did not take place, yet that which God's foreknowledge had predicted did take place, for he who foretold the destruction knew how it should be fulfilled in a less calamitous sense. But that these perversely compassionate persons may see what is the purport of these words how great is the abundance of thy sweetness, Lord, which thou hast hidden for them that fear thee. Let them read what follows, and thou hast perfected it for them that hope in thee. 
For what means thou hast hidden it for them that fear thee, thou hast perfected it for them that hope in thee, unless this, that to those who through fear of punishment seek to establish their own righteousness by the law, the righteousness of God is not sweet, because they are ignorant of it. They have not tasted it, for they hope in themselves, not in him, and therefore God's abundant sweetness is hidden from them. They fear God indeed, but it is with that servile fear which is not in love, for perfect love casteth out fear. Therefore to them that hope in him he perfecteth his sweetness, inspiring them with his own love, so that with a holy fear which love does not cast out, but which endureth for ever, they may, when they glory, glory in the Lord. For the righteousness of God is Christ, who is of God made unto us, as the Apostle says, wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. As it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. This righteousness of God, which is the gift of grace without merits, is not known by those who go about to establish their own righteousness, and are therefore not subject to the righteousness of God, which is Christ. But it is in this righteousness that we find the great abundance of God's sweetness, of which the psalm says, Taste and see how sweet the Lord is. And this we rather taste than partake of to satiety, in this our pilgrimage. We hunger and thirst for it now, that hereafter we may be satisfied with it when we see him as he is, and that is fulfilled which is written, I shall be satisfied when thy glory shall be manifested. It is thus that Christ perfects the great abundance of his sweetness to them that hope in him. But if God conceals his sweetness from them that fear him, in the sense that these are objectors fancy, so that men's ignorance of his purpose of mercy towards the wicked may lead them to fear him and live better, and so that there may be prayer made for those who are not living as they ought, how then does he perfect his sweetness to them that hope in him, since, if their dreams be true, it is this very sweetness which will prevent him from punishing those who do not hope in him. Let us then seek that sweetness of his which he perfects to them that hope in him, not that which he is supposed to perfect to those who despise and blaspheme him. For in vain, after this life, does a man seek for what he has neglected to provide while in this life. Then, as to that saying of the apostle, for God hath concluded all in unbelief, that he may have mercy upon all, it does not mean that he will condemn no one, but the foregoing context shows what is meant. The apostle composed the epistle for the Gentiles who were already believers, and when he was speaking to them of the Jews who were yet to believe, he says, For as ye in times past believed not God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. Then he added the words in question with which these persons beguile themselves. For God concluded all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. All whom, if not all those of whom he was speaking, just as if he had said, both you and them. God then concluded all those in unbelief 
both Jews and Gentiles, whom he foreknew and predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that they might be confounded by the bitterness of unbelief, and might repent and believingly turn to the sweetness of God's mercy, and might take up that exclamation of the psalm, How great is the abundance of thy sweetness, O Lord, which thou hast hidden for them that fear thee, but hast perfected to them that hope, not in themselves, but in thee. He has mercy, then, on all the vessels of mercy. And what means all? Both those of the Gentiles and those of the Jews, whom he predestinated, called, justified, glorified, none of these will be condemned by him, but we cannot say, none of all men whatever. Chapter 25 But let us now reply to those who promise deliverance from eternal fire, not to the devil and his angels, as neither do they of whom we have been speaking, nor even to all men whatever, but only to those who have been washed by the baptism of Christ, and have become partakers of his body and blood, no matter how they have lived, no matter what heresy or impiety they have fallen into. But they are contradicted by the Apostle, where he says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variances, emulations, wrath, strife, heresies, envyings, drunkenness, revelings, and the like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, for they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Certainly this sentence of the apostle is false, if such persons shall be delivered after any lapse of time, and shall then inherit the kingdom of God. But as it is not false, they shall certainly never inherit the kingdom of God. And if they shall never enter that kingdom, then they shall always be retained in eternal punishment, for there is no middle place where he may live unpunished who has not been admitted into that kingdom. And therefore we may reasonably inquire how we are to understand these words of the Lord Jesus. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof, and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live for ever. And those indeed whom we are now answering are refuted in their interpretation of this passage by those whom we are shortly to answer, and who do not promise this deliverance to all who have received the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's body, but only to the Catholics, however wickedly they live. For these, say they, have eaten the Lord's body not only sacramentally, but really being constituted members of his body, of which the Apostle says, We being many are one bread, one body. He then who is in the unity of Christ's body, that is to say, in the Christian membership, of which body the faithful have been wont to receive the sacrament at the altar, that man is truly said to eat the body and drink the blood of Christ. And consequently heretics and schismatics, being separate from the unity of this body, are able to receive the same sacrament, but with no profit to themselves, nay, rather to their own hurt, 
so that they are rather more severely judged than liberated after some time, for they are not in that bond of peace which is symbolized by that sacrament. But again, even those who sufficiently understand that he who is not in the body of Christ cannot be said to eat the body of Christ are in error when they promise liberation from the fire of eternal punishment to persons who fall away from the unity of that body into heresy or even into heathenish superstition. For, in the first place, they ought to consider how intolerable it is, and how discordant with sound doctrine, to suppose that many indeed, or almost all, who have forsaken the church Catholic, and have originated impious heresies, and become heresiarchs, should enjoy a destiny superior to those who never were Catholics, but have fallen into the snares of these others. That is to say, if the fact of their Catholic baptism and original reception of the sacrament of the body of Christ in the true body of Christ is sufficient to deliver these heresiarchs from eternal punishment. For certainly he who deserts the faith and from a deserter becomes an assailant is worse than he who has not deserted the faith he never held. And in the second place they are contradicted by the apostle who, after enumerating the works of the flesh, says with reference to heresies, They who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And therefore neither ought such persons as lead an abandoned and damnable life to be confident of salvation, though they persevere to the end in the communion of the church Catholic, and comfort themselves with the words, He that endureth to the end shall be saved. By the iniquity of their life they abandon that very righteousness of life which Christ is to them, whether it be by fornication or by perpetrating in their body the other uncleannesses which the apostle would not so much as mention, or by a dissolute luxury, or by doing any one of those things of which he says, They who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Consequently, they who do such things shall not exist anywhere but in eternal punishment, since they cannot be in the kingdom of God. For while they continue in such things to the very end of life, they cannot be said to abide in Christ to the end, for to abide in him is to abide in the faith of Christ. And this faith, according to the apostle's definition of it, worketh by love and love, as he elsewhere says, worketh no evil. Neither can these persons be said to eat the body of Christ, for they cannot even be reckoned among his members. For, not to mention other reasons, they cannot be at once the members of Christ and the members of a harlot. In fine, he himself, when he says, He that eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, dwelleth in me, and I in him, shows what it is in reality, and not sacramentally, to eat his body and drink his blood. For this is to dwell in Christ, that he also may dwell in us. So that it is as if he had said, He that dwelleth not in me, and in whom I do not dwell, let him not say or think that he eateth my body, or drinketh my blood. Accordingly, they who are not Christ's members do not dwell in him, and they who make themselves members of a harlot 
are not members of Christ unless they have penitently abandoned that evil and have returned to this good to be reconciled to it. Chapter 26 But, say they, the Catholic Christians have Christ for a foundation, and they have not fallen away from union with him, no matter how depraved a life they have built on this foundation, as wood, hay, stubble. And accordingly the well-directed faith by which Christ is their foundation will suffice to deliver them some time from the continuance of that fire, though it be with loss, since those things they have built on it shall be burned. Let the Apostle James summarily reply to them, If any man say he has faith, and have not works, can faith save him? And who then is it, they ask, of whom the Apostle Paul says, But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire? Let us join them in their inquiry, and one thing is very certain, that it is not he of whom James speaks, else we should make the two apostles contradict one another, if the one says, Though a man's works be evil, his faith will save him as by fire, while the other says, If he have not good works, can his faith save him? We shall then ascertain who it is who can be saved by fire, if we first discover what it is to have Christ for a foundation. And this we may very readily learn from the image itself. In a building the foundation is first. Whoever then has Christ in his heart, so that no earthly or temporal things, not even those that are legitimate and allowed, are preferred to him, has Christ as a foundation. But if these things be preferred, then, even though a man seem to have faith in Christ, yet Christ is not the foundation to that man, and much more if he, in contempt of wholesome precepts, seek forbidden gratifications, is he clearly convicted of putting Christ not first, but last, since he has despised him as his ruler, and has preferred to fulfill his own wicked lusts, in contempt of Christ's commands and allowances. Accordingly, if any Christian man loves a harlot, and, attaching himself to her, becomes one body, he has not now Christ for a foundation. But if any one loves his own wife, and loves her as Christ would have him love her, who can doubt that he has Christ for a foundation? But if he loves her in the world's fashion, carnally, as the disease of lust prompts him, and as the Gentiles love who know not God, even this the Apostle, or rather Christ by the Apostle, allows as a venial fault. And therefore even such a man may have Christ for a foundation. For so long as he does not prefer such an affection or pleasure to Christ, Christ is his foundation, though on it he builds wood, hay, stubble, and therefore he shall be saved as by fire. For the fire of affliction shall burn such luxurious pleasures and earthly loves, though they be not damnable, because enjoyed in lawful wedlock. And of this fire the fuel is bereavement, and all those calamities which consume these joys. Consequently the superstructure will be lost to him who has built it, for he shall not retain it, but shall be agonized by the loss of those things in the enjoyment of which he found pleasure. Chapter 27
but by this fire he shall be saved through virtue of the foundation, because even if a precursor demanded whether he would retain Christ or these things, he would prefer Christ. Would you hear, in the Apostle's own words, who he is who builds on the foundation gold, silver, precious stones? He that is unmarried, he says, careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. Would you hear who he is that buildeth wood, hay, stubble? But he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, the day, no doubt, of tribulation, because, says he, it shall be revealed by fire. He calls tribulation fire, just as it is elsewhere said, the furnace proves the vessels of the potter, and the trial of affliction righteous men. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, for a man's care for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord abides, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward, that is, he shall reap the fruit of his care. But if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, for what he loved he shall not retain, but he himself shall be saved, for no tribulation shall have moved him from that stable foundation, yet so as by fire, for that which he possessed with the sweetness of love, he does not lose without the sharp sting of pain. Here, then, as seems to me, we have a fire which destroys neither, but enriches the one, brings loss to the other, proves both. But if this passage of Corinthians is to interpret that fire of which the Lord shall say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, so that among these we are to believe there are those who build on the foundation wood, hay, stubble, and that they, through virtue of the good foundation, shall after a time be liberated from the fire that is the award of their evil deserts, what then shall we think of those on the right hand, to whom it shall be said, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, unless that they are those who have built on the foundation gold, silver, precious stones. But if the fire of which our Lord speaks is the same as that of which the Apostle says, yet so as by fire, then both, that is to say, both those on the right as well as those on the left, are to be cast into it. For that fire is to try both, since it is said, For the day of the Lord shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If, therefore, the fire shall try both, in order that if any man's work abide, that is, if the superstructure be not consumed by the fire, he may receive a reward, and that if his work is burned, he may suffer loss, certainly that fire is not the eternal fire itself. For into this latter fire only those on the left hand shall be cast, and that with final and everlasting doom. But that former fire proves those on the right hand. 
but some of them it so proves that it does not burn and consume the structure which is found to have been built by them on Christ as the foundation, while others of them it proves in another fashion so as to burn what they have built up, and thus cause them to suffer loss, while they themselves are saved because they have retained Christ, who was laid as their sure foundation, and have loved him above all. But if they are saved, then certainly they shall stand at the right hand, and shall with the rest hear the sentence, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, and not at the left hand, where those shall be who shall not be saved, and shall therefore hear the doom, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. For from that fire no man shall be saved, because they all shall go away into eternal punishment, where their worms shall not die, nor their fire be quenched, in which they shall be tormented day and night for ever. But if it be said that in the interval of time between the death of this body and that last day of judgment and retribution which shall follow the resurrection, the bodies of the dead shall be exposed to a fire of such a nature that it shall not affect those who have not in this life indulged in such pleasures and pursuits as shall be consumed like wood, hay, stubble, but shall affect those others who have carried with them structures of that kind. If it be said that such worldliness, being venial, shall be consumed in the fire of tribulation, either here only, or here and hereafter both, or here that it may not be hereafter, this I do not contradict, because possibly it is true. For perhaps even the death of the body is itself a part of this tribulation, for it results from the first transgression, so that the time which follows death takes its color, in each case, from the nature of the man's building. The persecutions, too, which have crowned the martyrs, and which Christians of all kinds suffer, try both buildings like a fire, consuming some, along with the builders themselves, if Christ is not found in them as their foundation, while others they consume without the builders, because Christ is found in them, and they are saved, though with loss, and other buildings still they do not consume because such materials as abide for ever are found in them. In the end of the world there shall be, in the time of Antichrist, tribulation such as has never been before. How many edifices there shall then be, of gold or of hay, built on the best foundation, Christ Jesus, which that fire shall prove, bringing joy to some, loss to others, but without destroying either sort, because of this stable foundation. But whosoever prefers, I do not say his wife, with whom he lives for carnal pleasure, but any of those relatives who afford no delight of such a kind, and whom it is right to love, whosoever prefers these to Christ, and loves them after a human and carnal fashion, has not Christ as a foundation, and will therefore not be saved by fire, nor indeed at all, for he shall not possibly dwell with the Saviour, who says very explicitly concerning this very matter, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
But he who loves his relations carnally, and yet, so that he does not prefer them to Christ, but would rather want them than Christ, if he were put to the proof, shall be saved by fire, because it is necessary that by the loss of these relations he suffer pain in proportion to his love. And he who loves father, mother, sons, daughters, according to Christ, so that he aids them in obtaining his kingdom and cleaving to him, or loves them because they are members of Christ, God forbid that this love should be consumed as wood, hay, stubble, and not rather be reckoned a structure of gold, silver, precious stones. For how can a man love those more than Christ, whom he loves only for Christ's sake? Chapter 27 it remains to reply to those who maintain that those only shall burn in eternal fire who neglect alms-deeds proportioned to their sins, resting this opinion on the words of the Apostle James, He shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. Therefore they say, He that hath showed mercy, though he has not reformed his dissolute conduct, but has lived wickedly and iniquitously even while abounding in alms, shall have a merciful judgment, so that he shall either be not condemned at all, or shall be delivered from final judgment after a time. And for the same reason they suppose that Christ will discriminate between those on the right hand and those on the left, and will send the one party into his kingdom, the other into eternal punishment, on the sole ground of their attention to, or neglect of, works of charity. Moreover, they endeavor to use the prayer which the Lord himself taught as a proof and bulwark of their opinion, that daily sins which are never abandoned can be expiated through alms-deeds, no matter how offensive or of what sort they be. For, say they, as there is no day on which Christians ought not to use this prayer, so there is no sin of any kind which, though committed every day, is not remitted when we say, Forgive us our debts, if we take care to fulfill what follows, as we forgive our debtors. For, they go on to say, the Lord does not say, If ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you your little daily sins, but will forgive you your sins. Therefore, be they of any kind or magnitude whatever, be they perpetrated daily and never abandoned or subdued in this life, they can be pardoned, they presume, through alms-deeds. But they are right to inculcate the giving of alms proportioned to past sins, for if they said that any kind of alms could obtain the divine pardon of great sins committed daily, and with habitual enormity, if they said that such sins could thus be daily remitted, they would see that their doctrine was absurd and ridiculous. For they would thus be driven to acknowledge that it were possible for a very wealthy man to buy absolution from murders, adulteries, and all manner of wickedness by paying a daily alms of ten paltry coins. And if it be most absurd and insane to make such an acknowledgment, and if we still ask what are those fitting alms of which even the forerunner of Christ said, Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance, undoubtedly it will be found that they are not such as are done by men who undermine their life by daily enormities even to the very end. 
for they suppose that by giving to the poor a small fraction of the wealth they acquire by extortion and spoliation they can propitiate Christ, so that they may with impunity commit the most damnable sins in the persuasion that they have bought from him a license to transgress, or rather do by, a daily indulgence. And if they for one crime have distributed all their goods to Christ's needy members, that could profit them nothing unless they desisted from all similar actions and attain charity which worketh no evil. He, therefore, who does alms-deeds proportioned to his sins must first begin with himself. For it is not reasonable that a man who exercises charity towards his neighbor should not do so towards himself, since he hears the Lord saying, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, and again, have compassion on thy soul, and please God. He, then, who has not compassion on his own soul, that he may please God, how can he be said to do alms-deeds proportioned to his sins? To the same purpose is that written, He who is bad to himself, to whom can he be good? We ought, therefore, to do alms that we may be heard when we pray that our past sins may be forgiven, not that while we continue in them we may think to provide ourselves with a license for wickedness by alms-deeds. The reason, therefore, of our predicting that he will impute to those on his right hand the alms-deeds they have done, and charge those on his left with omitting the same, is that he may thus show the efficacy of charity for the deletion of past sins, not for impunity in their perpetual commission. And such persons, indeed, as decline to abandon their evil habits of life for a better course, cannot be said to do charitable deeds. For this is the purport of the saying, Inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. He shows them that they do not perform charitable actions even when they think they are doing so. For if they gave bread to a hungering Christian because he is a Christian, assuredly they would not deny to themselves the bread of righteousness, that is, Christ himself. For God considers not the person to whom the gift is made, but the spirit in which it is made. He, therefore, who loves Christ in a Christian, extends alms to him in the same spirit in which he draws near to Christ, not in that spirit which would abandon Christ if it could do so with impunity. For in proportion as a man loves what Christ disapproves, does he himself abandon Christ. For what does it profit a man that he is baptized, if he is not justified? Did not he who said, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he shall not enter into the kingdom of God, say also, Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Why do many through fear of the first saying run to baptism, while few, through fear of the second, seek to be justified? As, therefore, it is not to his brother a man says, Thou fool, if, when he says it, he is indignant not at the brotherhood, but at the sin of the offender, for otherwise he were guilty of hell-fire. So he who extends charity to a Christian does not extend it to a Christian if he does not love Christ in him. Now he does not love Christ who refuses to be justified in him. 
Or again, if a man has been guilty of this sin of calling his brother fool, unjustly reviling him without any desire to remove his sin, his alms-deeds go a small way towards expiating this fault, unless he adds to this the remedy of reconciliation which the same passage enjoins. For it is there said, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Just so, it is a small matter to do alms-deeds, no matter how great they be, for any sin, so long as the offender continues in the practice of sin. Then, as to the daily prayer which the Lord himself taught, and which is therefore called the Lord's Prayer, it obliterates indeed the sins of the day, when day by day we say, Forgive us our debts, and when we not only say, but act out that which follows, as we forgive our debtors, but we utter this petition because sins have been committed, and not that they may be. For by it our Saviour designed to teach us that, however righteously we live in this life of infirmity and darkness, we still commit sins for the remission of which we ought to pray, while we must pardon those who sin against us, that we ourselves also may be pardoned. The Lord then did not utter the words, If ye forgive men their trespasses, your Father will also forgive you your trespasses, in order that we might contract from this petition such confidence as should enable us to sin securely from day to day, either putting ourselves above the fear of human laws, or craftily deceiving men concerning our conduct, but in order that we might thus learn not to suppose that we are without sins, even though we should be free from crimes, as also God admonished the priests of the old law to this same effect regarding their sacrifices, which he commanded them to offer first for their own sins, and then for the sins of the people. For even the very words of so great a master and lord are to be intently considered. For he does not say, If ye forgive men their sins, your Father will also forgive you your sins, no matter of what sort they be. But he says, Your sins. For it was a daily prayer he was teaching, and it was certainly to disciples already justified he was speaking. What then does he mean by your sins, but those sins from which not even you who are justified and sanctified can be free? While then those who seek occasion from this petition to indulge in habitual sin maintain that the Lord meant to include great sins, because he did not say, He will forgive you your small sins, but your sins, we, on the other hand, taking into account the character of the persons he was addressing, cannot see our way to interpret the expression, your sins, of anything but small sins, because such persons are no longer guilty of great sins. Nevertheless, not even great sins themselves, sins from which we must flee with a total reformation of life, are forgiven to those who pray, unless they observe the appended precept, as ye also forgive your debtors. 
For if the very small sins which attach even to the life of the righteous be not remitted without that condition, how much further from obtaining indulgence shall those be who are involved in many great crimes, if, while they cease from perpetrating such enormities, they still inexorably refuse to remit any debt incurred to themselves, since the Lord says, But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. For this is the purport of the saying of the Apostle James also, He shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. For we should remember that servant whose debt of ten thousand talents his Lord cancelled, but afterwards ordered him to pay up, because the servant himself had no pity for his fellow-servant who owed him an hundred pence. The words which the Apostle James subjoins, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment, find their application among those who are the children of the promise and vessels of mercy. For even those righteous men who have lived with such holiness that they receive into the eternal habitations others also who have won their friendship with the mammon of unrighteousness, became such only through the merciful deliverance of him who justifies the ungodly, imputing to him a reward according to grace, not according to debt. For among this number is the apostle who says, I obtained mercy to be faithful. But it must be admitted that those who are thus received into the eternal habitations are not of such a character that their own life would suffice to rescue them without the aid of the saints, and consequently in their case especially does mercy rejoice against judgment. And yet we are not on this account to suppose that every abandoned profligate who has made no amendment of his life is to be received into the eternal habitations if only he has assisted the saints with the mammon of unrighteousness, that is to say, with money or wealth which has been unjustly acquired, or, if rightfully acquired, is yet not the true riches, but only what iniquity counts riches, because it knows not the true riches in which those persons abound who even receive others also into eternal habitations. There is then a certain kind of life which is neither on the one hand so bad that those who adopt it are not helped towards the kingdom of heaven by any bountiful almsgiving by which they may relieve the want of the saints and make friends who could receive them into eternal habitations, nor on the other hand so good that it of itself suffices to win for them that great blessedness if they do not obtain mercy through the merits of those whom they have made their friends. And I frequently wonder that even Virgil should give expression to this sentence of the Lord, in which he says, Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that they may receive you into everlasting habitations. And this very similar saying, He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. For when that poet described the Elysian fields in which they supposed that the souls of the blessed dwell, he placed there not only those who had been able by their own merit to reach that abode, but added, And they who grateful memory won by services to others done. 
that is, they who had served others and thereby merited to be remembered by them. Just as if they used the expression so common in Christian lips where some humble person commends himself to one of the saints and says, Remember me, and secures that he do so by deserving well at his hand. But what that kind of life we have been speaking of is, and what those sins are which prevent a man from winning the kingdom of God by himself, but yet permit him to avail himself of the merits of the saints, it is very difficult to ascertain, very perilous to define. For my own part, in spite of all investigation, I have been, up to the present hour, unable to discover this. And possibly it is hidden from us, lest we should become careless in avoiding such sins, and so cease to make progress. But if it were known what these sins are, which, though they continue, and be not abandoned for a higher life, do yet not prevent us from seeking and hoping for the intercession of the saints, human sloth would presumptuously wrap itself in these sins, and would take no steps to be disentangled from such wrappings by the deft energy of any virtue, but would only desire to be rescued by the merits of other people, whose friendship had been won by a bountiful use of the mammon of unrighteousness. But now that we are left in ignorance of the precise nature of that iniquity which is venial, even though it be persevered in, certainly we are both more vigilant in our prayers and efforts for progress, and more careful to secure with the mammon of unrighteousness friends for ourselves among the saints. But this deliverance, which is effected by one's own prayers or the intercession of holy men, secures that a man be not cast into eternal fire, but not that, when once he has been cast into it, he should after a time be rescued from it. For even those who fancy that what is said of the good ground bringing forth abundant fruit, some thirty, some sixty, some an hundredfold, is to be referred to the saints, so that in proportion to their merits some of them shall deliver thirty men, some sixty, some an hundred, even those who maintain this are yet commonly inclined to suppose that this deliverance will take place at, and not after, the day of judgment. Under this impression, someone who observed the unseemly folly with which men promise themselves impunity, on the ground that all will be included in this method of deliverance, is reported to have very happily remarked that we should rather endeavor to live so well that we shall be all found among the number of those who are to intercede for the liberation of others, lest these should be so few in number that, after they have delivered one thirty, another sixty, another a hundred, there should still remain many who could not be delivered from punishment by their intercessions, and among them every one who has vainly and rashly promised himself the fruit of another's labor. But enough has been said in reply to those who acknowledge the authority of the same sacred scriptures as ourselves, but who, by a mistaken interpretation of them, conceive of the future rather as they themselves wish than as the scriptures teach. And, having given this reply, I now, according to promise, close this book. Book 22, Chapter 1 As we promised in the immediately preceding book, this, the last of the whole work, shall contain a discussion of the eternal blessedness of the city of God. 
This blessedness is named eternal, not because it shall endure for many ages, though at last it shall come to an end, but because, according to the words of the gospel, of his kingdom there shall be no end. Neither shall it enjoy the mere appearance of perpetuity which is maintained by the rise of fresh generations to occupy the place of those that have died out, as in an evergreen the same freshness seems to continue permanently, and the same appearance of dense foliage is preserved by the growth of fresh leaves in the room of those that have withered and fallen. But in that city all the citizens shall be immortal, men now for the first time enjoying what the holy angels have never lost. And this shall be accomplished by God, the most almighty founder of the city. For he has promised it, and cannot lie, and has already performed many of his promises, and has done many unpromised kindnesses to those whom he now asks to believe that he will do this also. For it is he who in the beginning created the world full of all visible and intelligible beings, among which he created nothing better than those spirits whom he endowed with intelligence, and made capable of contemplating and enjoying him, and united in our society, which we call the holy and heavenly city, and in which the material of their substance and blessedness is God himself, as it were, their common food and nourishment. It is he who gave to this intellectual nature free will of such a kind that if he wished to forsake God, that is, his blessedness, misery should forthwith result. It is he who, when he foreknew that certain angels would, in their pride, desire to suffice for their own blessedness, and would forsake their great good, did not deprive them of this power, deeming it to be more befitting his power and goodness to bring good out of evil than to prevent the evil from coming into existence. And indeed evil had never been had not the mutable nature, mutable though good, and created by the Most High God and immutable good, who created all things good, brought evil upon itself by sin." and this its sin is itself proof that its nature was originally good. For had it not been very good, though not equal to its Creator, the desertion of God as its light could not have been an evil to it. For as blindness is a vice of the eye, and this very fact indicates that the eye was created to see the light, and as, consequently, vice itself proves that the eye is more excellent than the other members, because it is capable of light, for on no other supposition would it be a vice of the eye to want light, so the nature which once enjoyed God teaches, even by its very vice, that it was created the best of all, since it is now miserable because it does not enjoy God. It is he who with very just punishment doomed the angels who voluntarily fell to everlasting misery, and rewarded those who continued in their attachment to the supreme good with the assurance of endless stability as the meed of their fidelity. It is he who made also man himself upright with the same freedom of will, an earthly animal indeed, but fit for heaven if he remained faithful to his Creator but destined to the misery appropriate to such a nature if he forsook him. 
It is he who, when he foreknew that man would in his turn sin by abandoning God and breaking his law, did not deprive him of the power of free will, because he at the same time foresaw what good he himself would bring out of the evil, and how from this mortal race, deservedly and justly condemned, he would by his grace collect, as now he does, a people so numerous that he thus fills up and repairs the blank made by the fallen angels, and that thus that beloved and heavenly city is not defrauded of the full number of its citizens, but perhaps may even rejoice in a still more overflowing population. CHAPTER Two. It is true that wicked men do many things contrary to God's will, but so great is his wisdom and power that all things which seem adverse to his purpose do still tend towards those just and good ends and issues which he himself has foreknown. And consequently, when God is said to change his will, as when, for example, he becomes angry with those to whom he was gentle, it is rather they than he who are changed, and they find him changed in so far as their experience of suffering at his hand is new, as the sun is changed to injured eyes, and becomes, as it were, fierce from being mild, and hurtful from being delightful, though in itself it remains the same as it was. That also is called the will of God which he does in the hearts of those who obey his commandments. And of this the Apostle says, For it is God that worketh in you both to will. As God's righteousness is used not only of the righteousness wherewith he himself is righteous, but also of that which he produces in the man whom he justifies, so also that is called his law, which, though given by God, is rather the law of men. For certainly they were men to whom Jesus said, It is written in your law, though in another place we read, The law of his God is in his heart. According to this will which God works in men, he is said also to will what he himself does not will, but causes his people to will, as he is said to know what he has caused those to know who were ignorant of it. For when the apostle says, but now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, we cannot suppose that God there for the first time knew those who were foreknown by him before the foundation of the world. But he is said to have known them then, because then he caused them to know. But I remember that I discussed these modes of expression in the preceding books. According to this will, then, by which we say that God wills what he causes to be willed by others, from whom the future is hidden, he wills many things which he does not perform. Thus his saints, inspired by his holy will, desire many things which never happen. They pray, for example, for certain individuals. They pray in a pious and holy manner. But what they request he does not perform, though he himself, by his own Holy Spirit, has wrought in them this will to pray. And consequently, when the saints, in conformity with God's mind, will and pray that all men be saved, we can use this mode of expression, God wills and does not perform, meaning that he who causes them to will these things himself wills them. 
But if we speak of that will of his which is eternal as his foreknowledge, certainly he has already done all things in heaven and on earth that he has willed, and not only past and present things, but even things still future. But before the arrival of that time in which he has willed the occurrence of what he foreknew and arranged before all time, we say, it will happen when God wills. But if we are ignorant not only of the time in which it is to be, but even whether it shall be at all, we say, it will happen if God wills, not because God will then have a new will which he had not before, but because that event which from eternity has been prepared in his unchangeable will shall then come to pass. Chapter 3 Wherefore, not to mention many other instances besides, as we now see in Christ the fulfillment of that which God promised to Abraham when he said, In thy seed shall all nations be blessed, so this also shall be fulfilled which he promised to the same race when he said by the prophet, They that are in their sepulchres shall rise again, and also there shall be a new heaven and a new earth, and the former shall not be mentioned nor come into mind, but they shall find joy and rejoicing in it. For I will make Jerusalem a rejoicing, and my people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and joy in my people, and the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her. And by another prophet he uttered the same prediction. At that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book, and many of them that sleep in the dust, or as some interpret it, in the mound, of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And in another place by the same prophet, the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom, and shall possess the kingdom for ever, even for ever and ever. And a little after, he says, His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Other prophecies referring to the same subject I have advanced in the twentieth book, and others still which I have not advanced, are found written in the same scriptures, and these predictions shall be fulfilled as those also have been which unbelieving men supposed would be frustrate. For it is the same God who promised both, and predicted that both would come to pass, the God whom the pagan deities tremble before, as even Porphyry, the noblest of pagan philosophers, testifies. Chapter 4 But men who use their learning and intellectual ability to resist the force of that great authority, which, in fulfillment of what was so long before predicted, has converted all races of men to faith and hope in its promises, seem to themselves to argue acutely against the resurrection of the body, while they cite what Cicero mentions in the third book, De Republica. For when he was asserting the apotheosis of Hercules and Romulus, he says, whose bodies were not taken up into heaven, for nature would not permit a body of earth to exist anywhere except upon earth. This, forsooth, is the profound reasoning of the wise men whose thoughts God knows that they are vain. 
For if we were only souls, that is, spirits, without any body, and if we dwelt in heaven, and had no knowledge of earthly animals, and were told that we should be bound to earthly bodies by some wonderful bond of union, and should animate them, should we not much more vigorously refuse to believe this, and maintain that nature would not permit an incorporeal substance to be held by a corporeal bond? And yet the earth is full of living spirits, to which terrestrial bodies are bound, and with which they are, in a wonderful way, implicated. If, then, the same God who has created such beings wills this also, what is to hinder the earthly body from being raised to a heavenly body, since a spirit which is more excellent than all bodies, and consequently than even a heavenly body, has been tied to an earthly body? If so small an earthly particle has been able to hold in union with itself something better than a heavenly body, so as to receive sensation and life, will heaven disdain to receive, or at least to retain, this sentient and living particle which derives its life and sensation from a substance more excellent than any heavenly body? If this does not happen now, it is because the time is not yet come which has been determined by him who has already done a much more marvelous thing than that which these men refuse to believe. For why do we not more intensely wonder that incorporeal souls, which are of higher rank than heavenly bodies, are bound to earthly bodies, rather than that bodies, although earthly, are exalted to an abode which, though heavenly, is yet corporeal, except because we have been accustomed to see this, and indeed are this, while we are not as yet that other marvel, nor have as yet ever seen it. Certainly, if we consult sober reason, the more wonderful of the two divine works is found to be to attach somehow corporeal things to incorporeal, and not to connect earthly things with heavenly, which, though diverse, are yet both of them corporeal. Chapter 5 But granting that this was once incredible, behold, now the world has come to the belief that the earthly body of Christ was received up into heaven. Already both the learned and unlearned have believed in the resurrection of the flesh and its ascension to the heavenly places, while only a very few, either of the educated or uneducated, are still staggered by it. If this is a credible thing which is believed, then let those who do not believe see how stolid they are. And if it is incredible, then this also is an incredible thing, that what is incredible should have received such credit. Here, then, we have two incredibles, to wit, the resurrection of our body to eternity and that the world should believe so incredible a thing, and both these incredibles the same God predicted should come to pass before either had as yet occurred. We see that already one of the two has come to pass, for the world has believed what was incredible. Why should we despair that the remaining one shall also come to pass, and that this which the world believed, though it was incredible, shall itself occur? For already that which was equally incredible has come to pass in the world's believing an incredible thing. Both were incredible, the one we see accomplished, the other we believe shall be. 
for both were predicted in those same scriptures by means of which the world believed. And the very manner in which the world's faith was won is found to be even more incredible if we consider it. Men uninstructed in any branch of a liberal education without any of the refinement of heathen learning, unskilled in grammar, not armed with dialectic, not adorned with rhetoric, but plain fishermen, and very few in number, these were the men whom Christ sent with the nets of faith to the sea of this world, and thus took out of every race so many fishes, and even the philosophers themselves, wonderful as they are, rare. Let us add, if you please, or because you ought to be pleased, this third incredible thing to the two former. And now we have three incredibles, all of which have yet come to pass. It is incredible that Jesus Christ should have risen in the flesh and ascended with flesh into heaven. It is incredible that the world should have believed so incredible a thing. It is incredible that a very few men of mean birth and the lowest rank and no education should have been able so effectually to persuade the world and even its learned men of so incredible a thing. Of these three incredibles, the parties with whom we are debating refuse to believe the first. They cannot refuse to see the second, which they are unable to account for if they do not believe the third. It is indubitable that the resurrection of Christ and his ascension into heaven with the flesh in which he rose is already preached and believed in the whole world. If it is not credible, how is it that it has already received credence in the whole world? If a number of noble, exalted, and learned men had said that they had witnessed it and had been at pains to publish what they had witnessed, it were not wonderful that the world should have believed it but it were very stubborn to refuse credence. But if, as is true, the world has believed a few obscure, inconsiderable, uneducated persons who state and write that they witnessed it, is it not unreasonable that a handful of wrong-headed men should oppose themselves to the creed of the whole world and refuse their belief? And if the world has put faith in a small number of men of mean birth and the lowest rank and no education, it is because the divinity of the thing itself appeared all the more manifestly in such contemptible witnesses. The eloquence indeed which lent persuasion to their message consisted of wonderful works, not words. For they who had not seen Christ risen in the flesh, nor ascending into heaven with his risen body, believed those who related how they had seen these things, and who testified not only with words, but wonderful signs. For men whom they knew to be acquainted with only one, or at most two languages, they marveled to hear speaking in the tongues of all nations. They saw a man, lame from his mother's womb, after forty years, stand up, sound at their word in the name of Christ, that handkerchiefs taken from their bodies had virtue to heal the sick, that countless persons, sick of various diseases, were laid in a row in the road where they were to pass, that their shadow might fall on them as they walked, and that they forthwith received health, that many other stupendous miracles were wrought by them in the name of Christ, and finally that they even raised the dead. If it be admitted that these things occurred as they are related, then we have a multitude of incredible things to add to those three incredibles. 
that the one incredibility of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ may be believed, we accumulate the testimonies of countless incredible miracles, but even so we do not bend the frightful obstinacy of these skeptics. But if they do not believe that these miracles were wrought by Christ's apostles to gain credence to their preaching of his resurrection and ascension, this one grand miracle suffices for us that the whole world has believed without any miracles. Chapter 6 Let us here recite the passage in which Tully expresses his astonishment that the apotheosis of Romulus should have been credited. I shall insert his words as they stand. It is most worthy of remark in Romulus that other men who are said to have become gods lived in less educated ages, when there was a greater propensity to the fabulous, and when the uninstructed were easily persuaded to believe anything. But the age of Romulus was barely six hundred years ago, and already literature and science had dispelled the errors that attach to an uncultured age. And a little after he says of the same Romulus words to this effect, from this we may perceive that Homer had flourished long before Romulus, and that there was now so much learning in individuals, and so generally diffused an enlightenment, that scarcely any room was left for fable. For antiquity admitted fables, and sometimes even very clumsy ones. But this age of Romulus was sufficiently enlightened to reject whatever had not the air of truth. Thus one of the most learned men, and certainly the most eloquent, Marcus Tullius Cicero, says that it is surprising that the divinity of Romulus was believed in, because the times were already so enlightened that they would not accept a fabulous fiction. But who believed that Romulus was a god, except Rome, which was itself small and in its infancy? Then afterwards it was necessary that succeeding generations should preserve the tradition of their ancestors, that, drinking in this superstition with their mother's milk, the state might grow and come to such power that it might dictate this belief, as from a point of vantage to all the nations over whom its sway extended. And these nations, though they might not believe that Romulus was a god, at least said so, that they might not give offence to their sovereign state by refusing to give its founder that title which was given him by Rome, which had adopted this belief not by a love of error, but an error of love. But though Christ is the founder of the heavenly and eternal city, yet it did not believe him to be God because it was founded by him, but rather it is founded by him in virtue of its belief. Rome, after it had been built and dedicated, worshipped its founder in a temple as a god, but this Jerusalem laid Christ, its God, as its foundation, that the building and dedication might proceed. The former city loved its founder, and therefore believed him to be a God. The latter believed Christ to be God, and therefore loved him. There was an antecedent cause for the love of the former city, and for its believing that even a false dignity attached to the object of its love. So there was an antecedent cause for the belief of the latter, and for its loving the true dignity which a proper faith, not a rash surmise, ascribed to its object. 
for not to mention the multitude of very striking miracles which proved that Christ is God, there were also divine prophecies heralding him, prophecies most worthy of belief, which, being already accomplished, we have not, like the fathers, to wait for their verification. Of Romulus, on the other hand, and of his building Rome and reigning in it, we read or hear the narrative of what did take place, not prediction which beforehand said that such things should be. And so far as his reception among the gods is concerned, history only records that this was believed, and does not state it as a fact, for no miraculous signs testified to the truth of this. For as to that wolf which is said to have nursed the twin brothers, and which is considered a great marvel, how does this prove him to have been divine? For even supposing that this nurse was a real wolf, and not a mere courtesan, she yet nursed both brothers, and Remus is not reckoned a god. Besides, what was there to hinder anyone from asserting that Romulus, or Hercules, or any such man was a god? Or who would rather choose to die than profess belief in his divinity? And did a single nation worship Romulus among its gods, unless it were forced through fear of the Roman name? But who can number the multitudes who have chosen death in the most cruel shapes, rather than deny the divinity of Christ? And thus the dread of some slight indignation, which it was supposed, perhaps groundlessly, might exist in the minds of the Romans, constrained some states who were subject to Rome to worship Romulus as a god, whereas the dread, not of a slight mental shock, but of severe and various punishments, and of death itself the most formidable of all, could not prevent an immense multitude of martyrs throughout the world from not merely worshipping, but also confessing Christ as God. The city of Christ, which, although as yet a stranger upon earth, had countless hosts of citizens, did not make war upon its godless persecutors for the sake of temporal security, but preferred to win eternal salvation by abstaining from war. They were bound, imprisoned, beaten, tortured, burned, torn in pieces, massacred, and yet they multiplied. It was not given to them to fight for their eternal salvation except by despising their temporal salvation for their Saviour's sake. I am aware that Cicero, in the third book of his De Republica, if I mistake not, argues that a first-rate power will not engage in war except either for honor or for safety. What he has to say about the question of safety, and what he means by safety, he explains in another place, saying, Private persons frequently evade by a speedy death destitution, exile, bonds, the scourge, and the other pains which even the most insensible feel. But to states, death, which seems to emancipate individuals from all punishments, is itself a punishment, for a state should be so constituted as to be eternal, and thus death is not natural to a republic as to a man, to whom death is not only necessary, but often even desirable. But when a state is destroyed, obliterated, annihilated, it is as if, to compare great things with small, this whole world perished and collapsed. Cicero said this because he, with the Platonists, believed that the world would not perish. 
It is therefore agreed that according to Cicero, a state should engage in war for the safety which preserves the state permanently in existence, though its citizens change, as the foliage of an olive or laurel or any tree of this kind is perennial, the old leaves being replaced by fresh ones. For death, as he says, is no punishment to individuals, but rather delivers them from all other punishments, but it is a punishment to the state. And therefore it is reasonably asked whether the Saguntines did right when they chose that their whole state should perish, rather than that they should break faith with the Roman Republic, for this deed of theirs is applauded by the citizens of the earthly republic. But I do not see how they could follow the advice of Cicero, who tell us that no war is to be undertaken save for safety or for honor. Neither does he say which of these two is to be preferred, if a case should occur in which the one could not be preserved without the loss of the other. For manifestly, if the Saguntines chose safety, they must break faith. If they kept faith, they must reject safety, as also it fell out. But the safety of the city of God is such that it can be retained, or rather acquired, by faith and with faith. But if faith be abandoned, no one can attain it. It is this thought of a most steadfast and patient spirit that has made so many noble martyrs, while Romulus has not had, and could not have, so much as one to die for his divinity. CHAPTER Seven. But it is thoroughly ridiculous to make mention of the false divinity of Romulus as any way comparable to that of Christ. Nevertheless, if Romulus lived about six hundred years before Cicero, in an age which already was so enlightened that it rejected all impossibilities, how much more in an age which certainly was more enlightened, being six hundred years later, the age of Cicero himself, and of the emperors Augustus and Tiberius, would the human mind have refused to listen to or believe in the resurrection of Christ's body and its ascension into heaven, and have scouted it as an impossibility, had not the divinity of the truth itself, or the truth of the divinity, and corroborating miraculous signs proved that it could happen and had happened? Through virtue of these testimonies, and notwithstanding the opposition and terror of so many cruel persecutions, the resurrection and immortality of the flesh, first in Christ, and subsequently in all in the new world, was believed, was intrepidly proclaimed, and was sown over the whole world, to be fertilized richly with the blood of the martyrs. For the predictions of the prophets that had preceded the events were read, they were corroborated by powerful signs, and the truth was seen to be not contradictory to reason, but only different from customary ideas, so that at length the world embraced the faith it had furiously persecuted. CHAPTER Eight. Why, they say, are those miracles which you affirm were wrought formerly, wrought no longer? I might indeed reply that miracles were necessary before the world believed, in order that it might believe, and whoever nowadays demands to see prodigies that he may believe is himself a great prodigy, because he does not believe, though the whole world does. But they make these objections for the sole purpose of insinuating that even those former miracles were never wrought. 
How then is it that everywhere Christ is celebrated with such firm belief in his resurrection and ascension? How is it that in enlightened times, in which every impossibility is rejected, the world has, without any miracles, believed things marvelously incredible? Or will they say that these things were credible, and therefore were credited? Why then do they themselves not believe? Our argument, therefore, is a summary one. Either incredible things which were not witnessed have caused the world to believe other incredible things which both occurred and were witnessed, or this matter was so credible that it needed no miracles in proof of it, and therefore convicts these unbelievers of unpardonable skepticism. This I might say for the sake of refuting these most frivolous objectors. But we cannot deny that many miracles were wrought to confirm that one grand and health-giving miracle of Christ's ascension to heaven with the flesh in which he rose. For these most trustworthy books of ours contain in one narrative both the miracles that were wrought and the creed which they were wrought to confirm. The miracles were published that they might produce faith, and the faith which they produced brought them into greater prominence for they are read in congregations that they may be believed, and yet they would not be so read unless they were believed. For even now miracles are wrought in the name of Christ, whether by his sacraments or by the prayers or relics of his saints, but they are not so brilliant and conspicuous as to cause them to be published with such glory as accompanied the former miracles. For the canon of the sacred writings which behoove to be closed causes those to be everywhere recited and to sink into the memory of all the congregations, but these modern miracles are scarcely known even to the whole population in the midst of which they are wrought, and at the best are confined to one spot. For frequently they are known only to a very few persons, while all the rest are ignorant of them, especially if the state is a large one. And when they are reported to other persons in other localities, there is no sufficient authority to give them prompt and unwavering credence, although they are reported to the faithful by the faithful. The miracle which was wrought at Milan when I was there, and by which a blind man was restored to sight, could come to the knowledge of many. For not only is the city a large one, but also the emperor was there at the time, and the occurrence was witnessed by an immense concourse of people that had gathered to the bodies of the martyrs Protasius and Gervasius, which had long lain concealed and unknown, but were now made known to the bishop Ambrose in a dream, and discovered by him. By virtue of these remains the darkness of that blind man was scattered, and he saw the light of day. But who but a very small number are aware of the cure which was wrought upon Innocentius, ex-advocate of the deputy prefecture, a cure wrought at Carthage, in my presence, and under my own eyes? For when I and my brother Olympius, who were not yet clergymen, though already servants of God, came from abroad, this man received us, and made us live with him, for he and all his household were devotedly pious. He was being treated by medical men for fistulae, of which he had a large number intricately seated in the rectum. He had already undergone an operation, and the surgeons were using every means at their command for his relief. 
In that operation he had suffered long-continued and acute pain. Yet, among the many folds of the gut, one had escaped the operators so entirely that, though they ought to have laid it open with the knife, they never touched it. And thus, though all those that had been opened were cured, this one remained as it was, and frustrated all their labor. The patient, having his suspicions awakened by the delay thus occasioned, and fearing greatly a second operation, which another medical man, one of his own domestics, had told him he must undergo, though this man had not even been allowed to witness the first operation, and had been banished from the house, and with difficulty allowed to come back to his enraged master's presence. The patient, I say, broke out to the surgeons, saying, are you going to cut me again? Are you, after all, to fulfill the prediction of that man whom you would not allow even to be present? The surgeons laughed at the unskillful doctor, and soothed their patient's fears with fair words and promises. So several days passed, and yet nothing they tried did him good. Still they persisted in promising that they would cure that fistula by drugs, without the knife. They called in also another old practitioner of great repute in that department, Ammonius, for he was still alive at that time, and he, after examining the part, promised the same result as themselves from their care and skill. On this great authority the patient became confident, and, as if already well, vented his good spirits in facetious remarks at the expense of his domestic physician, who had predicted a second operation. To make a long story short, after a number of days had thus uselessly elapsed, the surgeons, wearied and confused, had at last to confess that he could only be cured by the knife. Agitated with excessive fear, he was terrified, and grew pale with dread, and, when he collected himself and was able to speak, he ordered them to go away, and never to return. Worn out with weeping, and driven by necessity, it occurred to him to call in an Alexandrian, who was at that time esteemed a wonderfully skillful operator, that he might perform the operation his rage would not suffer them to do. But when he had come, and examined with a professional eye the traces of their careful work, he acted the part of a good man, and persuaded his patient to allow those same hands the satisfaction of finishing his cure, which had begun it with the skill that excited his admiration, adding that there was no doubt his only hope of a cure was by an operation, but that it was thoroughly inconsistent with his nature to win the credit of the cure by doing the little that remained to be done, and rob of their reward men whose consummate skill, care, and diligence he could not but admire when he saw the traces of their work. They were therefore again received to favor, and it was agreed that in the presence of the Alexandrian they should operate on the fistula, which, by the consent of all, could now only be cured by the knife. The operation was deferred till the following day. But when they had left, there arose in the house such a wailing, in sympathy with the excessive despondency of the master, that it seemed to us like the morning had a funeral, and we could scarcely repress it. Holy men were in the habit of visiting him daily. Saturninus, of blessed memory, at that time bishop of Uzali, and the presbyter Galosus, and the deacons of the church of Carthage, 
and among these was the bishop Aurelius, who alone of them all survives, a man to be named by us with due reverence, and with him I have often spoken of this affair, as we conversed together about the wonderful works of God, and I have found that he distinctly remembers what I am now relating. When these persons visited him that evening, according to their custom, he besought them, with pitiable tears, that they would do him the honour of being present next day at what he judged his funeral, rather than his suffering. For such was the terror his former pains had produced, that he made no doubt he would die in the hands of the surgeons. They comforted him, and exhorted him to put his trust in God, and nerve his will like a man. Then we went to prayer, but while we, in the usual way, were kneeling and bending to the ground, he cast himself down, as if someone were hurling him violently to the earth, and began to pray. But in what a manner, with what earnestness and emotion, with what a flood of tears, with what groans and sobs, that shook his whole body, and almost prevented him speaking, who can describe? Whether the others prayed, and had not their attention wholly diverted by this conduct, I do not know. For myself I could not pray at all. This only I briefly said in my heart, O Lord, what prayers of thy people dost thou hear, if thou hearest not these? For it seemed to me that nothing could be added to this prayer unless he expired in praying. We rose from our knees, and, receiving the blessing of the bishop, departed, the patient beseeching his visitors to be present next morning, they exhorting him to keep up his heart. The dreaded day dawned. The servants of God were present as they had promised to be. The surgeons arrived. All that the circumstances required was ready. The frightful instruments are produced. All look on in wonder and suspense. While those who have most influence with the patient are cheering his fainting spirit, his limbs are arranged on the couch so as to suit the hand of the operator, the knots of the bandages are untied, the part is bared, the surgeon examines it, and, with knife in hand, eagerly looks for the sinus that is to be cut. He searches for it with his eyes, he feels for it with his finger, he applies every kind of scrutiny, he finds a perfectly firm cicatrix. No words of mine can describe the joy and praise and thanksgiving to the merciful and almighty God which was poured from the lips of all with tears of gladness. Let the scene be imagined rather than described. In the same city of Carthage lived Innocentia, a very devout woman of the highest rank in the state. She had cancer in one of her breasts, a disease which, as physicians say, is incurable. Ordinarily, therefore, they either amputate, and so separate from the body the member on which the disease has seized, or that the patient's life may be prolonged a little, though death is inevitable even if somewhat delayed, they abandon all remedies, following, as they say, the advice of Hippocrates. This the lady we speak of had been advised to by a skilful physician who was intimate with her family, and she betook herself to God alone by prayer. On the approach of Easter she was instructed in a dream to wait for the first woman that came out from the baptistry after being baptized, and to ask her to make the sign of Christ upon her sore. 
She did so, and was immediately cured. The physician, who had advised her to apply no remedy, if she wished to live a little longer, when he had examined her after this, and found that she who, on his former examination, was afflicted with that disease, was now perfectly cured, eagerly asked her what remedy she had used, anxious, as we may well believe, to discover the drug which should defeat the decision of Hippocrates. But when she told him what had happened, he is said to have replied, with religious politeness, though with a contemptuous tone, and an expression which made her fear he would utter some blasphemy against Christ, I thought you would make some great discovery to me. She, shuddering at his indifference, quickly replied, What great thing was it for Christ to heal a cancer who raised one who had been four days dead? When, therefore, I had heard this, I was extremely indignant that so great a miracle wrought in that well-known city, and on a person who was certainly not obscure, should not be divulged, and I considered that she should be spoken to, if not reprimanded, on this score. And when she replied to me that she had not kept silence on the subject, I asked the women with whom she was best acquainted whether they had ever heard of this before. They told me they knew nothing of it. See, I said, what your not keeping silence amounts to, since not even those who are so familiar with you know of it. And as I had only briefly heard the story, I made her tell how the whole thing happened from beginning to end, while the other women listened in great astonishment and glorified God. A gouty doctor of the same city when he had given in his name for baptism, and had been prohibited the day before his baptism from being baptized that year by black woolly-haired boys who appeared to him in his dreams, and whom he understood to be devils, and when, though they trod on his feet and inflicted the acutest pain he had ever yet experienced, he refused to obey them, but overcame them and would not defer being washed in the labor of regeneration, was relieved in the very act of baptism not only of the extraordinary pain he was tortured with, but also of the disease itself, so that, though he lived a long time afterwards, he never suffered from gout. And yet who knows of this miracle? We, however, do know it, and so too do the small number of brethren who were in the neighborhood, and to whose ears it might come. An old comedian of Corybus was cured at baptism not only of paralysis, but also of hernia, and being delivered from both afflictions, came up out to the font of regeneration as if he had had nothing wrong with his body. Who outside of Corybus knows of this, or who but a very few who might hear it elsewhere? But we, when we heard of it, made the man come to Carthage by order of the holy bishop Aurelius, although we had already ascertained the fact on the information of persons whose word we could not doubt. Hesperius, of a tribunician family and a neighbor of our own, has a farm called Zubedi in the Fusalian district, and, finding that his family, his cattle, and his servants were suffering from the malice of evil spirits, he asked our presbyters, during my absence, that one of them would go with him and banish the spirits by his prayers. 
one went, offered there the sacrifice of the body of Christ, praying with all his might that that vexation might cease. It did cease forthwith through God's mercy. Now he had received from a friend of his own some holy earth brought from Jerusalem, where Christ, having been buried, rose again the third day. This earth he had hung up in his bedroom to preserve himself from harm. But when his house was purged of that demoniacal invasion, he began to consider what should be done with the earth, for his reverence for it made him unwilling to have it any longer in his bedroom. It so happened that I, and Maximinus, bishop of Sinita, and then my colleague, were in the neighborhood. Hesperius asked us to visit him, and we did so. When he had related all the circumstances, he begged that the earth might be buried somewhere, and that the spot should be made a place of prayer where Christians might assemble for the worship of God. We made no objection. It was done as he desired. There was in that neighborhood a young countryman who was paralytic, who, when he heard of this, begged his parents to take him without delay to that holy place. When he had been brought there, he prayed, and forthwith went away on his own feet, perfectly cured. There is a country seat called Victoriana, less than thirty miles from Hippo Regius. At it there is a monument to the Milanese martyrs Protasius and Gervasius. Thither a young man was carried, who, when he was watering his horse one summer day at noon in a pool of a river, had been taken possession of by a devil. As he lay at the monument near death, or even quite like a dead person, the lady of the manor with her maids and religious attendants entered the place for evening prayer and praise, as her custom was, and they began to sing hymns. At this sound the young man, as if electrified, was thoroughly aroused, and with frightful screaming seized the altar, and held it as if he did not dare or were not able to let it go, and as if he were fixed or tied to it. And the devil in him, with loud lamentation, besought that he might be spared, and confessed where and when and how he took possession of the youth. At last, declaring that he would go out of him, he named one by one the parts of his body which he threatened to mutilate as he went out, and with these words he departed from the man. But his eye, falling out on his cheek, hung by a slender vein as by a root, and the whole of the pupil which had been black became white. When this was witnessed by those present, Others, too, had now gathered to his cries, and had all joined in prayer for him. Although they were delighted that he had recovered his sanity of mind, yet, on the other hand, they were grieved about his eye, and said he should seek medical advice. But his sister's husband, who had brought him there, said, God, who has banished the devil, is able to restore his eye at the prayers of his saints. Therewith he replaced the eye that was fallen out and hanging, and bound it in its place with his handkerchief as well as he could, and advised him not to loose the bandage for seven days. When he did so, he found it quite healthy. Others also were cured there, but of them it was tedious to speak. I know that a young woman of Hippo was immediately dispossessed of a devil on anointing herself with oil, 
mixed with the tears of the presbyter who had been praying for her. I know also that a bishop once prayed for a demoniac young man whom he never saw, and that he was cured on the spot. There was a fellow townsman of ours at Hippo, Florentius, an old man, religious and poor, who supported himself as a tailor. Having lost his coat, and not having means to buy another, he prayed to the twenty martyrs, who have a very celebrated memorial shrine in our town, begging in a distinct voice that he might be clothed. Some scoffing young men, who happened to be present, heard him, and followed him with their sarcasm as he went away, as if he had asked the martyrs for fifty pence to buy a coat. But he, walking on in silence, saw on the shore a great fish, gasping as if just cast up, and having secured it with the good-natured assistance of the youths, he sold it for curing to a cook of the name of Ketosis, a good Christian man, telling him how he had come by it, and receiving for it three hundred pence, which he laid out in wool that his wife might exercise her skill upon, and make into a coat for him. But on cutting up the fish, the cook found a gold ring in its belly, and forthwith, moved with compassion, and influenced too by religious fear, gave it up to the man, saying, See how the twenty martyrs have clothed you. When the bishop Projectus was bringing the relics of the most glorious martyr Stephen to the waters of Tibilis, a great concourse of people came to meet him at the shrine. There a blind woman entreated that she might be led to the bishop who was carrying the relics. He gave her the flowers he was carrying. She took them, applied them to her eyes, and forthwith saw. Those who were present were astounded, while she, with every expression of joy, preceded them, pursuing her way without further need of a guide. Lucillus, bishop of Sinita, in the neighborhood of the colonial town of Hippo, was carrying in procession some relics of the same martyr which had been deposited in the castle of Sinita. A fistula, under which he had long labored, and which his private physician was watching an opportunity to cut, was suddenly cured by the mere carrying of that sacred fardel. At least afterwards there was no trace of it in his body. Eucarius, a Spanish priest residing at Calama, was for a long time a sufferer from stone. By the relics of the same martyr which the bishop Pasidius brought him, he was cured. Afterwards the same priest, sinking under another disease, was lying dead, and already they were binding his hands. By the succor of the same martyr he was raised to life, the priest's cloak having been brought from the oratory and laid upon the corpse. There was there an old nobleman named Marshall, who had a great aversion to the Christian religion, but whose daughter was a Christian, while her husband had been baptized that same year. When he was ill, they besought him with tears and prayers to become a Christian, but he positively refused, and dismissed them from his presence in a storm of indignation. It occurred to the son-in-law to go to the oratory of St. Stephen, and there pray for him with all earnestness that God might give him a right mind, so that he should not delay believing in Christ. This he did with great groaning and tears, and the burning fervor of sincere piety. 
Then, as he left the place, he took some of the flowers that were lying there, and, as it was already night, laid them by his father's head, who so slept. And, lo, before dawn he cries out for someone to run for the bishop, but he happened at that time to be with me at Hippo. So, when he had heard that he was from home, he asked the presbyters to come. They came. To the joy and amazement of all, he declared that he believed, and he was baptized. As long as he remained in life, these words were ever on his lips, Christ, receive my spirit, though he was not aware that these were the last words of the most blessed Stephen when he was stoned by the Jews. They were his last words also, for not long after he himself also gave up the ghost. There, too, by the same martyr, two men, one a citizen, the other a stranger, were cured of gout. But while the citizen was absolutely cured, the stranger was only informed what he should apply when the pain returned, and when he followed this advice, the pain was at once relieved. Augurus is the name of an estate where there is a church that contains a memorial shrine of the martyr Stephen. It happened that, as a little boy was playing in the court, the oxen drawing a wagon went out of the track and crushed him with a wheel, so that immediately he seemed at his last gasp. His mother snatched him up and laid him at the shrine, and not only did he revive, but also appeared uninjured. A religious female who lived at Caspalium, a neighboring estate, when she was so ill as to be despaired of, had her dress brought to this shrine, but before it was brought back she was gone. However, her parents wrapped her corpse in the dress, and, her breath returning, she became quite well. At Hippo, a Syrian called Bassus was praying at the relics of the same martyr for his daughter, who was dangerously ill. He, too, had brought her dress with him to the shrine. But as he prayed, behold, his servants ran from the house to tell him she was dead. His friends, however, intercepted them, and forbade them to tell him, lest he should bewail her in public. And when he had returned to his house, which was already ringing with the lamentations of his family, and had thrown on his daughter's body the dress he was carrying, she was restored to life. There, too, the son of a man, Irenaeus, one of our tax-gatherers, took ill and died. And while his body was lying lifeless, and the last rites were being prepared, amidst the weeping and mourning of all, one of the friends who were consoling the father suggested that the body should be anointed with the oil of the same martyr. It was done, and he revived. Likewise Eleusinus, a man of tribunician rank among us, laid his infant son, who had died, on the shrine of the martyr, which is in the suburb where he lived, and, after prayer, which he poured out there with many tears, he took up his child alive. What am I to do? I am so pressed by the promise of finishing this work that I cannot record all the miracles I know, and doubtless several of our adherents, when they read what I have narrated, will regret that I have omitted so many which they, as well as I, certainly know. 
Even now I beg these persons to excuse me, and to consider how long it would take me to relate all those miracles which the necessity of finishing the work I have undertaken forces me to omit. For were I to be silent of all others, and to record exclusively the miracles of healing which were wrought in the district of Calama and of Hippo by means of this martyr, I mean the most glorious Stephen, they would fill many volumes, and yet all even of these could not be collected, but only those of which narratives have been written for public recital. For when I saw, in our own times, frequent signs of the presence of divine powers similar to those which had been given of old, I desired that narratives might be written, judging that the multitude should not remain ignorant of these things. It is not yet two years since these relics were first brought to Hippo Regius, and though many of the miracles which have been wrought by it have not, as I have the most certain means of knowing, been recorded, those which have been published amount to almost seventy at the hour at which I write. But at Calama, where these relics have been for a longer time, and where more of the miracles were narrated for public information, there are incomparably more. At Uzali, too, a colony near Utica, many signal miracles were, to my knowledge, wrought by the same martyr whose relics had found a place there by direction of the bishop Evodius long before we had them at Hippo. But there the custom of publishing narratives does not obtain, or, I should say, did not obtain, for possibly it may now have been begun. For when I was there recently, a woman of rank, Petronia, had been miraculously cured of a serious illness of long standing, in which all medical appliances had failed, and, with the consent of the above-named bishop of the place, I exhorted her to publish an account of it that might be read to the people. She most promptly obeyed, and inserted in her narrative a circumstance which I cannot omit to mention, though I am compelled to hasten on to the subjects which this work requires me to treat. She said that she had been persuaded by a Jew to wear next her skin, under all her clothes, a hair-girdle, and on this girdle a ring which, instead of a gem, had a stone which had been found in the kidneys of an ox. Girt with this charm, she was making her way to the threshold of the holy martyr. But after leaving Carthage, and when she had been lodging in her own demesne on the river Bagrada, and was now rising to continue her journey, she saw her ring lying before her feet. In great surprise she examined the hair-girdle, and when she found it bound, as it had been, quite firmly with knots, she conjectured that the ring had been worn through and dropped off, but when she found that the ring was itself also perfectly whole, she presumed that by this great miracle she had received somehow a pledge of her cure whereupon she untied the girdle, and cast it into the river, and the ring along with it. This is not credited by those who do not believe, either that the Lord Jesus Christ came forth from his mother's womb without destroying her virginity, and entered among his disciples when the doors were shut, but let them make strict inquiry into this miracle, and, if they find it true, let them believe those others. The lady is of distinction, nobly born, married to a nobleman. She resides at Carthage. 
the city is distinguished, the person is distinguished, so that they who make inquiries cannot fail to find satisfaction. Certainly the martyr himself, by whose prayers she was healed, believed on the son of her who remained a virgin, on him who came in among the disciples when the doors were shut. In fine, and to this tends all that we have been retailing, on him who ascended into heaven with the flesh in which he had risen, and it is because he laid down his life for this faith that such miracles were done by his means. Even now, therefore, many miracles are wrought, the same God who wrought those we read of still performing them by whom he will and as he will, but they are not as well known nor are they beaten into the memory like gravel by frequent reading, so that they cannot fall out of mind. For even where, as is now done among ourselves, care is taken that the pamphlets of those who receive benefit be read publicly, yet those who are present hear the narrative but once, and many are absent. And so it comes to pass that even those who are present forget in a few days what they heard, and scarcely one of them can be found who will tell what he heard to one who he knows was not present. One miracle was wrought among ourselves, which, though no greater than those I have mentioned, was yet so signal and conspicuous that I suppose there is no inhabitant of Hippo who did not either see or hear of it, none who could possibly forget it. There were seven brothers and three sisters of a noble family of the Cappadocian Caesarea, who were cursed by their mother, a new-made widow, on account of some wrong they had done her, and which she bitterly resented, and who were visited with so severe a punishment from heaven that all of them were seized with a hideous shaking in all their limbs. Unable, while presenting this loathsome appearance, to endure the eyes of their fellow-citizens, they wandered over almost the whole Roman world, each following his own direction. Two of them came to Hippo, a brother and a sister, Paulus and Palladia, already known in many other places by the fame of their wretched lot. Now it was about fifteen days before Easter when they came, and they came daily to church, and specially to the relics of the most glorious Stephen, praying that God might now be appeased and restore their former health. There, and wherever they went, they attracted the attention of every one. Some who had seen them elsewhere, and knew the cause of their trembling, told others as occasion offered. Easter arrived, and on the Lord's day, in the morning, when there was now a large crowd present, and the young man was holding the bars of the holy place where the relics were, and praying, suddenly he fell down, and lay precisely as if asleep, but not trembling as he was wont to do, even in sleep. All present were astonished. Some were alarmed, some were moved with pity, and while some were for lifting him up, others prevented them, and said they should rather wait and see what would result. And behold, he rose up, and trembled no more, for he was healed, and stood quite well, scanning those who were scanning him. Who then refrained himself from praising God? The whole church was filled with the voices of those who were shouting and congratulating him. Then they came running to me, where I was sitting, ready to come into the church. One after another they throng in, the last comer telling me as news what the first had told me already. 
and while I rejoiced and inwardly gave God thanks, the young man himself also enters, with a number of others, falls at my knees, is raised up to receive my kiss. We go into the congregation, the church was full, and ringing with the shouts of joy, thanks to God, praised be God, everyone joining and shouting on all sides, I have healed the people, and then with still louder voice, shouting again. Silence being at last obtained, the customary lessons of the divine scriptures were read. And when I came to my sermon, I made a few remarks suitable to the occasion, and the happy and joyful feeling, not desiring them to listen to me, but rather to consider the eloquence of God in this divine work. The man dined with us, and gave us a careful account of his own, his mother's, and his family's calamity. Accordingly, on the following day, after delivering my sermon, I promised that next day I would read his narrative to the people. And when I did so the third day after Easter Sunday, I made the brother and sister both stand on the steps of the raised place from which I used to speak, and while they stood there their pamphlet was read. The whole congregation, men and women alike, saw the one standing without any unnatural movement, the other trembling in all her limbs, so that those who had not before seen the man himself saw in his sister what the divine compassion had removed from him. In him they saw a matter of congratulation, in her subject for prayer. Meanwhile, their pamphlet being finished, I instructed them to withdraw from the gaze of the people, and I had begun to discuss the whole matter somewhat more carefully, when, lo, as I was proceeding, other voices are heard from the tomb of the martyr, shouting new congratulations. My audience turned round and began to run to the tomb. The young woman, when she had come down from the steps where she had been standing, went to pray at the holy relics, and no sooner had she touched the bars than she, in the same way as her brother, collapsed as if falling asleep, and rose up cured. While then we were asking what had happened, and what occasioned this noise of joy, they came into the basilica where we were, leading her from the martyr's tomb, in perfect health. Then, indeed, such a shout of wonder rose from men and women together, that the exclamations and the tears seemed like never to come to an end. She was led to the place where she had, a little before, stood trembling. They now rejoiced that she was like her brother, as before they had mourned that she remained unlike him, and, as they had not yet uttered their prayers in her behalf, they perceived that their intention of doing so had been speedily heard. They shouted God's praises without words, but with such a noise that our ears could scarcely bear it. What was there in the hearts of these exultant people but the faith of Christ, for which Stephen had shed his blood. Chapter 9 To what do these miracles witness but to this faith which preaches Christ risen in the flesh, and ascended with the same into heaven? For the martyrs themselves were martyrs, that is to say, witnesses of this faith, drawing upon themselves by their testimony the hatred of the world, and conquering the world not by resisting it, but by dying. For this faith they died, and can now ask these benefits from the Lord in whose name they were slain. 
For this faith their marvelous constancy was exercised, so that in these miracles great power was manifested as the result. For if the resurrection of the flesh to eternal life had not taken place in Christ, and were not to be accomplished in his people, as predicted by Christ or by the prophets who foretold that Christ was to come, why do the martyrs who were slain for this faith which proclaims the resurrection possess such power? For whether God himself wrought these miracles by that wonderful manner of working, by which, though himself eternal, he produces effects in time, or whether he wrought them by servants, and if so, whether he made use of the spirits of martyrs as he uses men who are still in the body, or effects all these marvels by means of angels over whom he exerts an invisible, immutable, incorporeal sway, so that what is said to be done by the martyrs is done not by their operation, but only by their prayer and request, or whether, finally, some things are done in one way, others in another, and so that man cannot at all comprehend them. Nevertheless, these miracles attest this faith which preaches the resurrection of the flesh to eternal life. Chapter 10 Here, perhaps, our adversaries will say that their gods also have done some wonderful things if now they begin to compare their gods to our dead men. Or will they also say that they have gods taken from among dead men, such as Hercules, Romulus, and many others, whom they fancy to have been received into the number of the gods? But our martyrs are not our gods, for we know that the martyrs and we have both but one god, and that the same. Nor yet are the miracles which they maintain to have been done by means of their temples at all comparable to those which are done by the tombs of our martyrs. If they seem similar, their gods have been defeated by our martyrs as Pharaoh's magi were by Moses. In reality the demons wrought these marvels with the same impure pride with which they aspired to be the gods of the nations. But the martyrs do these wonders, or rather God does them, while they pray and assist, in order that an impulse may be given to the faith by which we believe that they are not our gods, but have, together with ourselves, one God. In fine, they built temples to these gods of theirs, and set up altars, and ordained priests, and appointed sacrifices. But to our martyrs we build, not temples as if they were gods, but monuments as to dead men whose spirits live with God. Neither do we erect altars at these monuments that we may sacrifice to the martyrs, but to the one God of the martyrs and of ourselves. And in this sacrifice they are named in their own place and rank as men of God who conquered the world by confessing him, but they are not invoked by the sacrificing priest. For it is to God, not to them, he sacrifices, though he sacrifices at their monument, for he is God's priest, not theirs. The sacrifice itself, too, is the body of Christ, which is not offered to them, because they themselves are this body. Which, then, can more readily be believed to work miracles? 
they who wish themselves to be reckoned gods by those on whom they work miracles, or those whose sole object in working any miracle is to induce faith in God and in Christ also as God. They who wished to turn even their crimes into sacred rites, or those who are unwilling that even their own praises be consecrated, and seek that everything for which they are justly praised be ascribed to the glory of him in whom they are praised. For in the Lord their souls are praised. Let us therefore believe those who both speak the truth and work wonders. For by speaking the truth they suffered, and so won the power of working wonders. And the leading truth they professed is that Christ rose from the dead, and first showed in his own flesh the immortality of the resurrection which he promised should be ours, either in the beginning of the world to come, or in the end of this world. Chapter 11 but against this great gift of God, these reasoners, whose thoughts the Lord knows that they are vain, bring arguments from the weights of the elements, for they have been taught by their master Plato that the two greatest elements of the world, and the furthest removed from one another, are coupled and united by the two intermediate, air and water. And consequently, they say, since the earth is the first of the elements, beginning from the base of the series, the second the water above the earth, the third the air above the water, the fourth the heaven above the air, it follows that a body of earth cannot live in the heaven, for each element is poised by its own weight so as to preserve its own place and rank. Behold with what arguments human infirmity, possessed with vanity, contradicts the omnipotence of God. What, then, do so many earthly bodies do in the air, since the air is the third element from the earth? Unless, perhaps, he who has granted to the earthly bodies of birds that they be carried through the air by the lightness of feathers and wings, has not been able to confer upon the bodies of men made immortal the power to abide in the highest heaven. The earthly animals, too, which cannot fly, among which are men, ought on these terms to live under the earth as fishes, which are the animals of the water, live under the water. Why, then, can an animal of earth not live in the second element, that is, in water, while it can in the third? Why, though it belongs to the earth, is it forthwith suffocated, if it is forced to live in the second element next above earth, while it lives in the third, and cannot live out of it? Is there a mistake here in the order of the elements, or is not the mistake rather in their reasonings, and not in the nature of things? I will not repeat what I said in the thirteenth book, that many earthly bodies, though heavy like lead, receive from the workman's hand a form which enables them to swim in water, and yet it is denied that the omnipotent worker can confer on the human body a property which shall enable it to pass into heaven and dwell there. But against what I have formerly said, they can find nothing to say, even though they introduce and make the most of this order of the elements in which they confide. For if the order be that the earth is first, the water second, the air third, the heaven fourth, then the soul is above all. For Aristotle said that the soul was a fifth body, 
while Plato denied that it was a body at all. If it were a fifth body, then certainly it would be above the rest. And if it is not a body at all, so much the more does it rise above all. What, then, does it do in an earthly body? What does this soul, which is finer than all else, do in such a mass of matter as this? What does the lightest of substances do in this ponderosity, this swiftest substance, in such sluggishness? Will not the body be raised to heaven by virtue of so excellent a nature as this? And if now earthly bodies can retain the souls below, shall not the souls be one day able to raise the earthly bodies above? If we pass now to their miracles which they oppose to our martyrs as wrought by their gods, shall not even these be found to make for us, and to help out our argument? For if any of the miracles of their gods are great, certainly that is a great one which Varro mentions of a vestal virgin, who, when she was endangered by a false accusation of unchastity, filled a sieve with water from the Tiber, and carried it to her judges without any part of it leaking. Who kept the weight of water in the sieve? Who prevented any drop from falling from it through so many open holes? They will answer, some god or some demon. If a god, is he greater than the god who made the world? If a demon, is he mightier than an angel who serves the god by whom the world was made? If then a lesser god, angel or demon, could so sustain the weight of this liquid element that the water might seem to have changed its nature, shall not Almighty God, who himself created all the elements, be able to eliminate from the earthly body its heaviness, so that the quickened body shall dwell in whatever element the quickening spirit pleases. Then again, since they give the air a middle place between the fire above and the water beneath, how is it that we often find it between water and water, and between the water and the earth? For what do they make of those watery clouds between which, and the seas, air is constantly found intervening? I should like to know by what weight and order of the elements it comes to pass that very violent and stormy torrents are suspended in the clouds above the earth before they rush along upon the earth under the air. In fine, why is it that throughout the whole globe the air is between the highest heaven and the earth, if its place is between the sky and the water, as the place of the water is between the sky and the earth. Finally, if the order of the elements is so disposed that, as Plato thinks, the two extremes, fire and earth, are united by the two means, air and water, and that the fire occupies the highest part of the sky, and the earth the lowest part, or, as it were, the foundation of the world, and that therefore earth cannot be in the heavens, how is fire in the earth? For according to this reasoning these two elements, earth and fire, ought to be so restricted to their own places, the highest and the lowest, that neither the lowest can rise to the place of the highest, nor the highest sink to that of the lowest. Thus, as they think that no particle of earth is or shall ever be in the sky, so we ought to see no particle of fire on the earth. But the fact is that it exists to such an extent, not only on, but even under the earth, 
that the tops of mountains vomit it forth, besides that we see it to exist on earth for human uses, and even to be produced from the earth, since it is kindled from wood and stones, which are without doubt earthly bodies. But that upper fire, they say, is tranquil, pure, harmless, eternal. But this earthly fire is turbid, smoky, corruptible, and corrupting. But it does not corrupt the mountains and caverns of the earth, in which it rages continually. But grant that the earthly fire is so unlike the other as to suit its earthly position, why then do they object to our believing that the nature of earthly bodies shall some day be made incorruptible and fit for the sky, even as now fire is corruptible and suited to the earth? They therefore adduce from their weights and order of the elements nothing from which they can prove that it is impossible for Almighty God to make our bodies such that they can dwell in the skies. Chapter 12 But their way is to feign a scrupulous anxiety in investigating this question and to cast ridicule on our faith in the resurrection of the body by asking whether abortions shall rise. And, as the Lord says, Verily I say unto you, Not a hair of your head shall perish. Shall all bodies have an equal stature and strength, or shall there be differences in size? For if there is to be equality, where shall those abortions, supposing that they rise again, get that bulk which they had not here? Or, if they shall not rise, because they were not born, but cast out, they raise the same question about children who have died in childhood, asking us whence they get the stature which we see they had not here. For we will not say that those who haven't been not only born, but born again, shall not rise again. Then further they ask of what size these equal bodies shall be. For if all shall be as tall and large as were the tallest and largest in this world, they ask us how it is that not only children, but many full-grown persons, shall receive what they here did not possess, if each one is to receive what he had here. And if the saying of the Apostle, that we are all to come to the measure of the age of the fullness of Christ, or that other saying, whom he predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, is to be understood to mean that the stature and size of Christ's body shall be the measure of the bodies of all those who shall be in his kingdom, then, say they, the size and height of many must be diminished, and if so much of the bodily frame itself be lost, what becomes of the saying, Not a hair of your head shall perish? Besides, it might be asked regarding the hair itself whether all that the barber has cut off shall be restored, and, if it is to be restored, who would not shrink from such deformity? For as the same restoration will be made of what has been pared off the nails, much will be replaced on the body which a regard for its appearance had cut off. And where, then, will be its beauty, which assuredly ought to be much greater in that immortal condition than it could be in this corruptible state? On the other hand, if such things are not restored to the body, they must perish. How, then, they say, shall not a hair of the head perish? In like manner they reason about fatness and leanness, for if all are to be equal, then certainly there shall not be some fat, others lean. 
Some, therefore, shall gain, others lose something. Consequently, there will not be a simple restoration of what formerly existed, but, on the one hand, an addition of what had no existence, and, on the other, a loss of what did before exist. The difficulties, too, about the corruption and dissolution of dead bodies, that one is turned into dust while another evaporates into the air, that some are devoured by beasts, some by fire, while some perish by shipwreck or by drowning in one shape or other, so that their bodies decay into liquid. These difficulties give them immoderate alarm, and they believe that all those dissolved elements cannot be gathered again and reconstructed into a body. They also make eager use of all the deformities and blemishes which either accident or birth has produced, and accordingly, with horror and derision, cite monstrous births, and ask if every deformity will be preserved in the resurrection. For if we say that no such thing shall be reproduced in the body of a man, they suppose that they confute us by citing the marks of the wounds which we assert were found in the risen body of the Lord Christ. But of all these the most difficult question is, into whose body that flesh shall return which has been eaten and assimilated by another man constrained by hunger to use it so, for it has been converted into the flesh of the man who used it as his nutriment, and it filled up those losses of flesh which famine had produced. For the sake, then, of ridiculing the resurrection, they ask, Shall this return to the man whose flesh it first was, or to him whose flesh it afterwards became? And thus, too, they seek to give promise to the human soul of alternations of true misery and false happiness in accordance with Plato's theory, or in accordance with Porphyry's, that, after many transmigrations into different bodies, it ends its miseries and never more returns to them, not, however, by obtaining an immortal body, but by escaping from every kind of body. Chapter 13 To these objections, then, of our adversaries, which I have thus detailed, I will now reply, trusting that God will mercifully assist my endeavors. That abortions, which, even supposing they were alive in the womb, did also die there, shall rise again, I make bold neither to affirm nor to deny, although I fail to see why, if they are not excluded from the number of the dead, they should not attain to the resurrection of the dead. For either all the dead shall not rise, and there will be to all eternity some souls without bodies, though they once had them, only in their mother's womb, indeed, or if all human souls shall receive again the bodies which they had wherever they lived, and which they left when they died, then I do not see how I can say that even those who died in their mother's womb shall have no resurrection. But whichever of these opinions any one may adopt concerning them, we must at least apply to them, if they rise again, all that we have to say of infants who have been born. Chapter 14. What then are we to say of infants, if not that they will not rise in that diminutive body in which they died, but shall receive by the marvellous and rapid operation of God that body which time, by a slower process, would have given them? For in the Lord's words, where he says, Not a hair of your head shall perish, it is asserted that nothing which was possessed shall be wanting. 
But it is not said that nothing which was not possessed shall be given. To the dead infant there was wanting the perfect stature of its body, for even the perfect infant lacks the perfection of bodily size, being capable of further growth. This perfect stature is, in a sense, so possessed by all that they are conceived and born with it, that is, they have it potentially, though not yet in actual bulk, just as all the members of the body are potentially in the seed, though even after the child is born, some of them, the teeth, for example, may be wanting. In this seminal principle of every substance there seems to be, as it were, the beginning of everything which does not yet exist, or rather does not appear, but which in process of time will come into being, or rather into sight. In this, therefore, the child who is to be tall or short is already tall or short, and in the resurrection of the body we need, for the same reason, fear no bodily loss. For though all should be of equal size and reach gigantic proportions, lest the men who are largest here should lose anything of their bulk, and it should perish in contradiction to the words of Christ, who said that not a hair of their head should perish, yet why should there lack the means by which that wonderful worker should make such additions, seeing that he is the Creator, who himself created all things out of nothing? Chapter 15 It is certain that Christ rose in the same bodily stature in which he died, and that it is wrong to say that when the general resurrection shall have arrived, his body shall, for the sake of equaling the tallest, assume proportions which it had not when he appeared to the disciples in the figure with which they were familiar. But if we say that even the bodies of taller men are to be reduced to the size of the Lord's body, there will be a great loss in many bodies, though he promised that not a hair of their head should perish. It remains, therefore, that we conclude that every man shall receive his own size which he had in youth, though he died an old man, or which he would have had, supposing he died before his prime. As for what the Apostle said of the measure of the age or the fullness of Christ, we must either understand him to refer to something else, to wit, the fact that the measure of Christ will be completed when all the members among the Christian communities are added to the head, or, if we are to refer it to the resurrection of the body, the meaning is that all shall rise neither beyond nor under youth, but in that vigor and age to which we know that Christ had arrived. For even the world's wisest men have fixed the bloom of youth at about the age of thirty, and when this period has been passed, the man begins to decline towards the defective and duller period of old age. And therefore the apostle did not speak of the measure of the body, nor of the measure of the stature, but of the measure of the age of the fullness of Christ. Chapter 16 Then again these words, predestinate to be conformed to the image of the Son of God, may be understood of the inner man. So in another place he says to us, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed in the renewing of your mind. In so far, then, as we are transformed so as not to be conformed to the world, we are conformed to the Son of God. It may also be understood thus, 
that as he was conformed to us by assuming mortality, we shall be conformed to him by immortality, and this indeed is connected with the resurrection of the body. But if we are also taught in these words what form our bodies shall rise in, as the measure we spoke of before, so also this conformity is to be understood not of size, but of age. Accordingly, all shall rise in the stature they either had attained or would have attained, had they lived to their prime, although it will be no great disadvantage, even if the form of the body be infantine or aged, while no infirmity shall remain in the mind, nor in the body itself. So that even if any one contends that every person will rise again in the same bodily form in which he died, we need not spend much labor in disputing with him. Chapter 17 From the words, Till we all come to a perfect man, to the measure of the age of the fullness of Christ, and from the words, Conformed to the image of the Son of God, some conclude that women shall not rise women, but that all shall be men, because God made man only of earth, and woman of the man. For my part, they seem to be wiser, who make no doubt that both sexes shall rise. For there shall be no lust, which is now the cause of confusion. For before they sinned, the man and the woman were naked, and were not ashamed. From those bodies, then, vice shall be withdrawn, while nature shall be preserved. And the sex of woman is not a vice, but nature. It shall then indeed be superior to carnal intercourse and childbearing. Nevertheless, the female members shall remain adapted not to the old uses, but to a new beauty which, so far from provoking lust, now extinct, shall excite praise to the wisdom and clemency of God, who both made what was not, and delivered from corruption what he made. For at the beginning of the human race the woman was made of a rib taken from the side of the man while he slept. For it seemed fit that even then Christ and his church should be foreshadowed in this event. For that sleep of the man was the death of Christ, whose side, as he hung lifeless upon the cross, was pierced with a spear, and there flowed from it blood and water, and these we know to be the sacraments by which the church is built up. For Scripture used this very word, not saying he formed or framed, but built her up into a woman, whence also the Apostle speaks of the edification of the body of Christ, which is the church. The woman, therefore, is a creature of God even as the man, but by her creation from man unity is commended, and the manner of her creation prefigured, as has been said, Christ and the Church. He, then, who created both sexes will restore both. Jesus himself also, when asked by the Sadducees who denied the resurrection which of the seven brothers should have to wife the woman whom all in succession had taken to raise up seed to their brother, as the law enjoined, says, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. And though it was a fit opportunity for his saying, She about whom you make inquiries shall herself be a man, and not a woman, he said nothing of the kind, but in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. 
they shall be equal to the angels in immortality and happiness, not in flesh, nor in resurrection, which the angels did not need, because they could not die. The Lord then denied that there would be in the resurrection not women, but marriages, and he uttered this denial in circumstances in which the question mooted would have been more easily and speedily solved by denying that the female sex would exist if this had in truth been foreknown by him. But indeed he even affirmed that the sex should exist by saying, They shall not be given in marriage, which can only apply to females, neither shall they marry, which applies to males. There shall therefore be those who are in this world accustomed to marry and be given in marriage, only they shall there make no such marriages. Chapter 18 To understand what the Apostle means when he says that we shall all come to a perfect man, we must consider the connection of the whole passage which runs thus. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the age of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but, speaking the truth in love, may grow up in him in all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Behold what the perfect man is, the head and the body which is made up of all the members which in their own time shall be perfected. But new additions are daily being made to this body while the church is being built up, to which it is said, Ye are the body of Christ and his members. And again, for his body's sake, he says, which is the church. And again, we being many are one head, one body. It is of the edification of this body that it is here too said, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edification of the body of Christ. And then that passage of which we are now speaking is added, till we all come to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the age of the fullness of Christ, and so on and he shows of what body we are to understand this to be the measure when he says that we may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working and the measure of every part. As, therefore, there is a measure of every part, so there is a measure of the fullness of the whole body, which is made up of all its parts, and it is of this measure, it is said, 
to the measure of the age of the fullness of Christ. This fullness he spoke of also in the place where he says of Christ, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. But even if this should be referred to the form in which each one shall rise, what should hinder us from applying to the woman what is expressly said of the man, understanding both sexes to be included under the general term man? For certainly in the saying, Blessed is he who feareth the Lord, women also who fear the Lord are included. Chapter 19 what am I to say now about the hair and nails? Once it is understood that no part of the body shall so perish as to produce deformity in the body, it is at the same time understood that such things as would have produced a deformity by their excessive proportions shall be added to the total bulk of the body, not to parts in which the beauty of the proportion would thus be marred. Just as if, after making a vessel of clay, one wished to make it over again of the same clay, it would not be necessary that the same portion of the clay which had formed the handle should again form the new handle, or that what had formed the bottom should again do so, but only that the whole clay should go to make up the whole new vessel, and that no part of it should be left unused. Wherefore, if the hair that has been cropped and the nails that have been cut would cause a deformity were they to be restored to their places, they shall not be restored. And yet no one will lose these parts at the resurrection, for they shall be changed into the same flesh, their substance being so altered as to preserve the proportion of the various parts of the body. However, what our Lord said, not a hair of your head shall perish, might more suitably be interpreted of the number, and not of the length of the hairs, as he elsewhere says, The hairs of your head are all numbered. Nor would I say this, because I suppose that any part naturally belonging to the body can perish, but that whatever deformity was in it, and served to exhibit the penal condition in which we mortals are, should be restored in such a way that while the substance is entirely preserved, the deformity shall perish. For if even a human workman who has, for some reason, made a deformed statue can recast it and make it very beautiful, and this without suffering any part of the substance but only the deformity to be lost, if he can, for example, remove some unbecoming or disproportionate part, not by cutting off and separating this part from the whole, but by so breaking down and mixing up the whole as to get rid of the blemish without diminishing the quantity of his material, shall we not think as highly of the Almighty Worker? Shall he not be able to remove and abolish all deformities of the human body, whether common ones or rare and monstrous, which, though in keeping with this miserable life, are yet not to be thought of in connection with that future blessedness, and shall he not be able so to remove them that, while the natural but unseemly blemishes are put an end to, the natural substance shall suffer no diminution? And consequently overgrown and emaciated persons need not fear that they shall be in heaven of such a figure as they would not be even in this world if they could help it. 
for all bodily beauty consists in the proportion of the parts together with a certain agreeableness of color. Where there is no proportion, the eye is offended, either because there is something wanting, or too small, or too large. And thus there shall be no deformity resulting from want of proportion in that state in which all that is wrong is corrected, and all that is defective supplied from resources the Creator wots of, and all that is excessive removed without destroying the integrity of the substance. And as for the pleasant color, how conspicuous shall it be, where the just shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father? This brightness we must rather believe to have been concealed from the eyes of the disciples when Christ rose, than to have been a wanting. For weak human eyesight could not bear it, and it was necessary that they should so look upon him as to be able to recognize him. For this purpose also he allowed them to touch the marks of his wounds, and also ate and drank, not because he needed nourishment, but because he could take it if he wished. Now when an object, though present, is invisible to persons who see other things which are present, as we say that that brightness was present but invisible by those who saw other things, this is called in Greek aorasia and our Latin translators, for want of a better word, have rendered this cachitas, blindness, in the book of Genesis. This blindness the men of Sodom suffered when they sought the just Lot's gate, and could not find it. But if it had been blindness, that is to say, if they could see nothing, then they would not have asked for the gate by which they might enter the house, but for guides who might lead them away. But the love we bear to the blessed martyrs causes us, I know not how, to desire to see in the heavenly kingdom the marks of the wounds which they received for the name of Christ, and possibly we shall see them. For this will not be a deformity, but a mark of honor, and will add luster to their appearance, and a spiritual, if not a bodily, beauty. And yet we need not believe that they to whom it has been said, Not a hair of your head shall perish, shall, in the resurrection, want such of their members as they have been deprived of in their martyrdom. But if it will be seemly in that new kingdom to have some marks of these wounds still visible in that immortal flesh, the places where they have been wounded or mutilated shall retain the scars without any of the members being lost. While, therefore, it is quite true that no blemishes which the body has sustained shall appear in the resurrection, yet we are not to reckon or name these marks of virtue blemishes. Chapter 20 Far be it from us to fear that the omnipotence of the Creator cannot, for the resuscitation and reanimation of our bodies, recall all the portions which have been consumed by beasts, or fire, or have been dissolved into dust or ashes, or have decomposed into water, or evaporated into the air. Far from us be the thought that anything which escapes our observation in any most hidden recess of nature either evades the knowledge or transcends the power of the Creator of all things. Cicero, the great authority of our adversaries, wishing to define God as accurately as possible, says, God is a mind free and independent, without materiality, perceiving and moving all things, 
and itself endowed with eternal movement. This he found in the systems of the greatest philosophers. Let me ask, then, in their own language, how anything can either lie hid from him who perceives all things, or irrevocably escape him who moves all things. This leads me to reply to that question which seems the most difficult of all. To whom in the resurrection will belong the flesh of a dead man which has become the flesh of a living man? For if someone, famishing for want and pressed with hunger, use human flesh as food, an extremity not unknown, as both ancient history and the unhappy experience of our own days have taught us, can it be contended with any show of reason that all the flesh eaten has been evacuated, and that none of it has been assimilated to the substance of the eater, though the very emaciation which existed before, and has now disappeared, sufficiently indicates what large deficiencies have been filled up with this food? But I have already made some remarks which will suffice for the solution of this difficulty also. For all the flesh which hunger has consumed finds its way into the air by evaporation, whence, as we have said, God Almighty can recall it. That flesh, therefore, shall be restored to the man in whom it first became human flesh. For it must be looked upon as borrowed by the other person, and, like a pecuniary loan, must be returned to the lender. His own flesh, however, which he lost by famine, shall be restored to him by him who can recover even what has evaporated. And, though it had been absolutely annihilated, so that no part of its substance remained in any secret spot of nature, the Almighty could restore it by such means as he saw fit. For this sentence, uttered by the truth, not a hair of your head shall perish, forbids us to suppose that though no hair of a man's head can perish, yet the large portions of his flesh eaten and consumed by the famishing can perish. From all that we have thus considered and discussed with such poor ability as we can command, we gather this conclusion, that in the resurrection of the flesh the body shall be of that size which it either had attained or should have attained in the flower of its youth, and shall enjoy the beauty that arises from preserving symmetry and proportion in all its members. And it is reasonable to suppose that for the preservation of this beauty any part of the body's substance which, if placed in one spot, would produce a deformity, shall be distributed through the whole of it, so that neither any part nor the symmetry of the whole may be lost, but only the general stature of the body somewhat increased by the distribution in all the parts of that which, in one place, would have been unsightly. Or, if it is contended that each will rise with the same stature as that of the body he died in, we shall not obstinately dispute this, provided only there be no deformity, no infirmity, no languor, no corruption, nothing of any kind which would ill become that kingdom in which the children of the resurrection and of the promise shall be equal to the angels of God, if not in body and age, at least in happiness. Chapter 21 
Whatever, therefore, has been taken from the body, either during life or after death, shall be restored to it, and, in conjunction with what has remained in the grave, shall rise again, transformed from the oldness of the animal body into the newness of the spiritual body, and clothed in incorruption and immortality. But even though the body has been all quite ground to powder by some severe accident, or by the ruthlessness of enemies, and, though it has been so diligently scattered to the winds or into the water, that there is no trace of it left, yet it shall not be beyond the omnipotence of the Creator. No, not a hair of its head shall perish. The flesh shall then be spiritual and subject to the spirit, but still flesh, not spirit, as the spirit itself, when subject to the flesh, was fleshly, but still spirit, and not flesh. And of this we have experimental proof in the deformity of our penal condition. For those persons were carnal, not in a fleshly, but in a spiritual way, to whom the apostle said, I could not speak to you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. And a man is, in this life, spiritual in such a way that he is yet carnal with respect to his body, and sees another law in his members warring against the law of his mind. But even in his body he will be spiritual when the same flesh shall have had that resurrection of which these words speak. It is sown an animal body, it shall rise a spiritual body. But what this spiritual body shall be, and how great its grace, I fear it were but rash to pronounce, seeing that we have as yet no experience of it. Nevertheless, since it is fit that the joyfulness of our hope should utter itself, and so show forth God's praise, and since it was from the profoundest sentiment of ardent and holy love that the psalmist cried, O Lord, I have loved the beauty of thy house. We may, with God's help, speak of the gifts he lavishes on men, good and bad alike, in this most wretched life, and may do our best to conjecture the great glory of that state which we cannot worthily speak of, because we have not yet experienced it. For I say nothing of the time when God made man upright, I say nothing of the happy life of the man and his wife in the fruitful garden, since it was so short that none of their children experienced it. I speak only of this life which we know, and in which we now are, from the temptations of which we cannot escape so long as we are in it, no matter what progress we make, for it is all temptation, and I ask, who can describe the tokens of God's goodness that are extended to the human race, even in this life? Chapter 22 That the whole human race has been condemned in its first origin, this life itself, if life it is to be called, bears witness by the host of cruel ills with which it is filled. Is not this proved by the profound and dreadful ignorance which produces all the errors that enfold the children of Adam, and from which no man can be delivered without toil, pain, and fear? Is it not proved by his love of so many vain and hurtful things, which produces gnawing cares, disquiet, griefs, fears, wild joys, quarrels, lawsuits, wars, treasons, 
angers, hatreds, deceit, flattery, fraud, theft, robbery, perfidy, pride, ambition, envy, murders, parricides, cruelty, ferocity, wickedness, luxury, insolence, impudence, shamelessness, fornications, adulteries, incests, and the numberless uncleannesses and unnatural acts of both sexes, which it is shameful so much as to mention, sacrileges, heresies, blasphemies, perjuries, oppression of the innocent, calumnies, plots, falsehoods, false witnessings, unrighteous judgments, violent deeds, plunderings, and whatever similar wickedness has found its way into the lives of men, though it cannot find its way into the conception of pure minds. These are, indeed, the crimes of wicked men, yet they spring from that root of error and misplaced love which is born with every son of Adam. For who is there that has not observed with what profound ignorance, manifesting itself even in infancy, and with what superfluity of foolish desires, beginning to appear in boyhood, man comes into this life, so that, were he left to live as he pleased, and to do whatever he pleased, he would plunge into all, or certainly into many of those crimes and iniquities which I mentioned, and could not mention. But because God does not wholly desert those whom he condemns, nor shuts up in his anger his tender mercies, the human race is restrained by law and instruction, which keep guard against the ignorance that besets us, and oppose the assaults of vice that are themselves full of labor and sorrow. For what mean those multifarious threats which are used to restrain the folly of children? What mean pedagogues, masters, the birch, the strap, the cane, the schooling which Scripture says must be given a child, beating him on the sides lest he wax stubborn, and it be hardly possible or not possible at all to subdue him? Why all these punishments save to overcome ignorance and bridle evil desires, these evils with which we come into the world? For why is it that we remember with difficulty, and without difficulty, forget, learn with difficulty, and without difficulty remain ignorant, are diligent with difficulty, and without difficulty are indolent? Does not this show what vitiated nature inclines and tends to by its own weight, and what succor it needs if it is to be delivered? Inactivity, sloth, laziness, negligence are vices which shun labor, since labor, though useful, is itself a punishment. But besides the punishments of childhood, without which there would be no learning of what the parents wish, and the parents rarely wish anything useful to be taught, who can describe, who can conceive the number and severity of the punishments which afflict the human race, pains which are not only the accompaniment of the wickedness of godless men, but are a part of the human condition and the common misery. What fear and what grief are caused by bereavement and mourning, by losses and condemnations, by fraud and falsehood, by false suspicions, and all the crimes and wicked deeds of other men. 
for at their hands we suffer robbery, captivity, chains, imprisonment, exile, torture, mutilation, loss of sight, the violation of chastity to satisfy the lust of the oppressor, and many other dreadful evils. What numberless casualties threaten our bodies from without, extremes of heat and cold, storms, floods, inundations, lightning, thunder, hail, earthquakes, houses falling, or from the stumbling or shying or vice of horses, from countless poisons in fruits, water, air, animals, from the painful or even deadly bites of wild animals, from the madness which a mad dog communicates, so that even the animal which of all others is most gentle and friendly to its own master becomes an object of intenser fear than a lion or dragon, and the man whom it has by chance infected with this pestilential contagion becomes so rabid that his parents, wife, children dread him more than any wild beast. What disasters are suffered by those who travel by land or sea? What man can go out of his own house without being exposed on all hands to unforeseen accidents? Returning home sound in limb, he slips on his own doorstep, breaks his leg, and never recovers. What can seem safer than a man sitting in his chair? Eli the priest fell from his and broke his neck. How many accidents do farmers, or rather all men, fear that the crops may suffer from the weather, or the soil, or the ravages of destructive animals? Commonly they feel safe when the crops are gathered and housed. Yet, to my certain knowledge, sudden floods have driven the laborers away, and swept the barns clean of the finest harvest. Is innocence a sufficient protection against the various assaults of demons? that no man might think so, even baptized infants, who are certainly unsurpassed in innocence, are sometimes so tormented that God, who permits it, teaches us hereby to bewail the calamities of this life, and to desire the felicity of the life to come. As to bodily diseases, they are so numerous that they cannot be all contained even in medical books, and in very many, or almost all of them, the cures and remedies are themselves tortures, so that men are delivered from a pain that destroys by a cure that pains. Has not the madness of thirst driven men to drink human urine, and even their own? Has not hunger driven men to eat human flesh, and that the flesh not of bodies found dead, but of bodies slain for the purpose? Have not the fierce pangs of famine driven mothers to eat their own children, incredibly savage as it seems? In fine, sleep itself, which is justly called repose, how little of repose there sometimes is in it, when disturbed with dreams and visions, and with what terror is the wretched mind overwhelmed by the appearances of things which are so presented, and which, as it were, so stand out before the senses, that we cannot distinguish them from realities. How wretchedly do false appearances distract men in certain diseases! With what astonishing variety of appearances are even healthy men sometimes deceived by evil spirits, who produce these delusions for the sake of perplexing the senses of their victims, 
if they cannot succeed in seducing them to their side. From this hell upon earth there is no escape save through the grace of the Saviour Christ, our God and Lord. The very name Jesus shows this, for it means Saviour, and he saves us especially from passing out of this life into a more wretched and eternal state, which is rather a death than a life. For in this life, though holy men and holy pursuits afford us great consolations, yet the blessings which men crave are not invariably bestowed upon them, lest religion should be cultivated for the sake of these temporal advantages, while it ought rather to be cultivated for the sake of that other life from which all evil is excluded. Therefore also does grace aid good men in the midst of present calamities, so that they are enabled to endure them with a constancy proportioned to their faith. The world's sages affirm that philosophy contributes something to this, that philosophy which, according to Cicero, the gods have bestowed in its purity only on a few men. They have never given, he says, nor can ever give, a greater gift to men so that even those against whom we are disputing have been compelled to acknowledge in some fashion that the grace of God is necessary for the acquisition not indeed of any philosophy, but of the true philosophy. And if the true philosophy, this sole support against the miseries of this life, has been given by heaven only to a few, it sufficiently appears from this that the human race has been condemned to pay this penalty of wretchedness. And as, according to their acknowledgment, no greater gift has been bestowed by God, so it must be believed that it could be given only by that God whom they themselves recognize as greater than all the gods they worship. Chapter 23 But irrespective of the miseries which in this life are common to the good and bad, the righteous undergo labors peculiar to themselves, in so far as they make war upon their vices, and are involved in the temptations and perils of such a contest. For though sometimes more violent, and at other times slacker, yet without intermission does the flesh lust against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, so that we cannot do the things we would, and extirpate all lust, but can only refuse consent to it, as God gives us ability, and so keep it under, vigilantly keeping watch, lest a semblance of truth deceive us, lest a subtle discourse blind us, lest error involve us in darkness, lest we should take good for evil, or evil for good, lest fear should hinder us from doing what we ought, or desire precipitate us into doing what we ought not, lest the sun go down upon our wrath, lest hatred provoke us to render evil for evil, lest unseemly or immoderate grief consume us, lest an ungrateful disposition make us slow to recognize benefits received, lest calumnies fret our conscience, lest rash suspicion on our part deceive us regarding a friend, or false suspicion of us on the part of others give us too much uneasiness, lest sin reign in our mortal body to obey its desires, lest our members be used as the instruments of unrighteousness, lest the eye follow lust, lest thirst for revenge carry us away, 
lest sight or thought dwell too long on some evil thing which gives us pleasure, lest wicked or indecent language be willingly listened to, lest we do what is pleasant but unlawful, and lest, in this warfare, filled so abundantly with toil and peril, we either hope to secure victory by our own strength, or attribute it when secured to our own strength, and not to his grace, of whom the apostle says, Thanks be unto God, who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in another place he says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. But yet we are to know this, that however valorously we resist our vices, and however successful we are in overcoming them, yet as long as we are in this body we have always reason to say to God, Forgive us our debts. But in that kingdom, where we shall dwell for ever, clothed in immortal bodies, we shall no longer have either conflicts or debts, as indeed we should not have had at any time, or in any condition, had our nature continued upright as it was created. Consequently, even this, our conflict, in which we are exposed to peril, and from which we hope to be delivered by a final victory, belongs to the ills of this life, which is proved by the witness of so many grave evils, to be a life under condemnation. Chapter 24 But we must now contemplate the rich and countless blessings with which the goodness of God, who cares for all he has created, has filled this very misery of the human race, which reflects his retributive justice. That first blessing which he pronounced before the fall, when he said, Increase, and multiply, and replenish the earth, he did not inhibit after man had sinned, but the fecundity originally bestowed remained in the condemned stock, and the vice of sin, which has involved us in the necessity of dying, has yet not deprived us of that wonderful power of seed, or rather of that still more marvellous power by which seed is produced, and which seems to be, as it were, inwrought and inwoven in the human body. But in this river, as I may call it, or torrent of the human race, both elements are carried along together, both the evil which is derived from him who begets, and the good which is bestowed by him who creates us. In the original evil there are two things, sin and punishment. In the original good there are two other things, propagation and conformation. But of the evils of which the one, sin, arose from our audacity, and the other, punishment, from God's judgment, we have already said as much as suits our present purpose. I mean now to speak of the blessings which God has conferred or still confers upon our nature, vitiated and condemned as it is. For in condemning it he did not withdraw all that he had given it, else it had been annihilated. Neither did he, in penally subjecting it to the devil, remove it beyond his own power. For not even the devil himself is outside of God's government, since the devil's nature subsists only by the Supreme Creator, who gives being to all that in any form exists. 
Of these two blessings, then, which we have said flow from God's goodness, as from a fountain, towards our nature, vitiated by sin and condemned to punishment, the one, propagation, was conferred by God's benediction when he made those first works from which he rested on the seventh day. But the other, conformation, is conferred in that work of his wherein he worketh hitherto. For were he to withdraw his efficacious power from things, they should neither be able to go on and complete the periods assigned to their measured movements, nor should they even continue in possession of that nature they were created in. God then so created man that he gave him what we may call fertility, whereby he might propagate other men, giving them a congenital capacity to propagate their kind, but not imposing on them any necessity to do so. This capacity God withdraws at pleasure from individuals, making them barren, but from the whole race he has not withdrawn the blessing of propagation once conferred. But though not withdrawn on account of sin, this power of propagation is not what it would have been had there been no sin. For since man placed in honor fell, he has become like the beasts, and generates as they do, though the little spark of reason, which was the image of God in him, has not been quite quenched. But if conformation were not added to propagation, there would be no reproduction of one's kind. For even though there were no such thing as copulation, and God wished to fill the earth with human inhabitants, he might create all these as he created one without the help of human generation. And indeed, even as it is, those who copulate can generate nothing save by the creative energy of God. As, therefore, in respect of that spiritual growth whereby a man is formed to piety and righteousness, the Apostle says, Neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. So also it must be said that it is not he that generates that is anything, but God that giveth the essential form, that it is not the mother who carries and nurses the fruit of her womb that is anything, but God that giveth the increase. For he alone, by that energy wherewith he worketh hitherto, causes the seed to develop and to evolve from certain secret and invisible folds into the visible forms of beauty which we see. He alone, coupling and connecting in some wonderful fashion the spiritual and corporeal natures, the one to command, the other to obey, makes a living being. And this work of his is so great and wonderful that not only man, who is a rational animal and consequently more excellent than all other animals of the earth, but even the most diminutive insect cannot be considered attentively without astonishment and without praising the Creator. It is he, then, who has given to the human soul a mind in which reason and understanding lie, as it were, asleep during infancy, and as if they were not destined, however, to be awakened and exercised as years increase, so as to become capable of knowledge and of receiving instruction, fit to understand what is true and to love what is good. 
It is by this capacity the soul drinks in wisdom, and becomes endowed with those virtues by which, in prudence, fortitude, temperance, and righteousness, it makes war upon error and the other inborn vices, and conquers them by fixing its desires upon no other object than the supreme and unchangeable good. And even though this be not uniformly the result, yet who can competently utter or even conceive the grandeur of this work of the Almighty, and the unspeakable boon he has conferred upon our rational nature by giving us even the capacity of such attainment? For over and above those arts which are called virtues, and which teach us how we may spend our life well, and attain to endless happiness, arts which are given to the children of the promise and the kingdom by the sole grace of God which is in Christ, has not the genius of man invented and applied countless astonishing arts, partly the result of necessity, partly the result of exuberant invention, so that this vigor of mind which is so active in the discovery not merely of superfluous but even of dangerous and destructive things betokens an inexhaustible wealth in the nature which can invent, learn, or employ such arts. What wonderful, one might say stupefying, advances has human industry made in the arts of weaving and building, of agriculture and navigation, with what endless variety are designs in pottery, painting, and sculpture produced, and with what skill executed. What wonderful spectacles are exhibited in the theatres which those who have not seen them cannot credit! How skilful the contrivances for catching, killing, or taming wild beasts! And for the injury of men also, how many kinds of poisons, weapons, engines of destruction have been invented, while for the preservation or restoration of health the appliances and remedies are infinite! To provoke appetite and please the palate, what a variety of seasonings have been concocted! To express and gain entrance for thoughts, what a multitude and variety of signs there are, among which speaking and writing hold the first place! What ornaments has eloquence at command to delight the mind! What wealth of song is there to captivate the ear! How many musical instruments and strains of harmony have been devised! What skill has been attained in measures and numbers! With what sagacity have the movements and connections of the stars been discovered! Who could tell the thought that has been spent upon nature, even though, despairing of recounting it in detail, he endeavoured only to give a general view of it? In fine, even the defence of errors and misapprehensions which has illustrated the genius of heretics and philosophers cannot be sufficiently declared. For at present it is the nature of the human mind which adorns this mortal life which we are extolling, and not the faith and the way of truth which lead to immortality. And since this great nature has certainly been created by the true and supreme God, who administers all things he has made with absolute power and justice, it could never have fallen into these miseries, nor have gone out of them to miseries eternal, saving only those who are redeemed, 
had not an exceeding great sin been found in the first man from whom the rest have sprung. Moreover, even in the body, though it dies like that of the beasts, and is in many ways weaker than theirs, what goodness of God, what providence of the great Creator is apparent? The organs of sense and the rest of the members, are not they so placed the appearance and form and stature of the body as a whole, is it not so fashioned as to indicate that it was made for the service of a reasonable soul? Man has not been created stooping towards the earth like the irrational animals, but his bodily form, erect and looking heavenwards, admonishes him to mind the things that are above. Then the marvelous nimbleness which has been given to the tongue and the hands, fitting them to speak and write and execute so many duties and practice so many arts, does it not prove the excellence of the soul for which such an assistant was provided? And even apart from its adaptation to the work required of it, there is such a symmetry in its various parts, and so beautiful a proportion maintained, that one is at a loss to decide whether, in creating the body, greater regard was paid to utility or to beauty. Assuredly no part of the body has been created for the sake of utility which does not also contribute something to its beauty. And this would be all the more apparent if we knew more precisely how all its parts are connected and adapted to one another, and were not limited in our observations to what appears on the surface. For as to what is covered up and hidden from our view, the intricate web of veins and nerves, the vital parts of all that lies under the skin, no one can discover it. For although, with a cruel zeal for science, some medical men, who are called anatomists, have dissected the bodies of the dead, and sometimes even of sick persons who died under their knives, and have inhumanly pried into the secrets of the human body to learn the nature of the disease, and its exact seat, and how it might be cured, yet those relations of which I speak, and which form the concord, or, as the Greeks call it, harmony of the whole body, outside and in, as of some instrument, no one has been able to discover, because no one has been audacious enough to seek for them. But if these could be known, then even the inward parts, which seem to have no beauty, would so delight us with their exquisite fitness, as to afford a profounder satisfaction to the mind, and the eyes are but its ministers, than the obvious beauty which gratifies the eye. There are some things, too, which have such a place in the body, that they obviously serve no useful purpose, but are solely for beauty, as, for example, the teats on a man's breast, or the beard on his face. For that this is for ornament, and not for protection, is proved by the bare faces of women, who ought rather, as the weaker sex, to enjoy such a defence. If, therefore, of all those members which are exposed to our view, there is certainly not one in which beauty is sacrificed to utility, while there are some which serve no purpose but only beauty, I think it can readily be concluded that in the creation of the human body comeliness was more regarded than necessity. In truth, necessity is a transitory thing, 
and the time is coming when we shall enjoy one another's beauty without any lust, a condition which will specially redound to the praise of the Creator, who, as it is said in the psalm, has put on praise and comeliness. How can I tell of the rest of creation with all its beauty and utility which the divine goodness has given to man to please his eye and serve his purposes, condemned though he is, and hurled into these labors and miseries? Shall I speak of the manifold and various loveliness of sky and earth and sea, of the plentiful supply and wonderful qualities of the light, of sun, moon, and stars, of the shade of trees, of the colors and perfume of flowers, of the multitude of birds, all differing in plumage and in song, of the variety of animals, of which the smallest in size are often the most wonderful, the works of ants and bees astonishing us more than the huge bodies of whales. Shall I speak of the sea, which itself is so grand a spectacle, when it arrays itself, as it were, in vestures of various colors, now running through every shade of green, and again becoming purple or blue? Is it not delightful to look at it in storm, and experience the soothing complacency which it inspires, by suggesting that we ourselves are not tossed and shipwrecked? What shall I say of the numberless kinds of food to alleviate hunger, and the variety of seasonings to stimulate appetite which are scattered everywhere by nature, and for which we are not indebted to the art of cookery? How many natural appliances are there for preserving and restoring health? How grateful is the alternation of day and night! How pleasant the breezes that cool the air! How abundant the supply of clothing furnished us by trees and animals! Who can enumerate all the blessings we enjoy? If I were to attempt to detail and unfold only these few which I have indicated in the Mass, such an enumeration would fill a volume. And all these are but the solace of the wretched and condemned, not the rewards of the blessed. What, then, shall these rewards be, if such be the blessings of a condemned state? What will he give to those whom he has predestined to life, who has given such things even to those whom he has predestined to death? What blessings will he, in the blessed life, shower upon those for whom, even in this state of misery, he has been willing that his only begotten Son should endure such sufferings even to death? Thus the Apostle reasons concerning those who are predestined to that kingdom. He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also give us all things? When this promise is fulfilled, what shall we be? What blessings shall we receive in that kingdom, since already we have received, as the pledge of them, Christ's dying? In what condition shall the spirit of man be, when it has no longer any vice at all, when it neither yields to any, nor is in bondage to any, nor has to make war against any, but is perfected, and enjoys undisturbed peace with itself? Shall it not then know all things with certainty, and without any labor or error, when unhindered and joyfully it drinks the wisdom of God at the fountain-head? 
What shall the body be when it is in every respect subject to the spirit from which it shall draw a life so sufficient as to stand in need of no other nutriment? For it shall no longer be animal but spiritual, having indeed the substance of flesh, but without any fleshly corruption. Chapter 25 the foremost of the philosophers agree with us about the spiritual felicity enjoyed by the blessed in the life to come. It is only the resurrection of the flesh they call in question, and with all their might deny. But the mass of men, learned and unlearned, the world's wise men and its fools, have believed, and have left in meagre isolation the unbelievers, and have turned to Christ, who in his own resurrection demonstrated the reality of that which seems to our adversaries absurd. For the world has believed this which God predicted, as it was also predicted that the world would believe, a prediction not due to the sorceries of Peter, since it was uttered so long before. He who has predicted these things, as I have already said, and am not ashamed to repeat, is the God before whom all other divinities tremble, as Porphyry himself owns, and seeks to prove, by testimonies from the oracles of these gods, and goes so far as to call him God the Father and King. Far be it from us to interpret these predictions as they do, who have not believed, along with the whole world, in that which it was predicted the world would believe in. For why should we not rather understand them as the world does, whose belief was predicted, and leave that handful of unbelievers to their idle talk and obstinate and solitary infidelity? For if they maintain that they interpret them differently only to avoid charging Scripture with folly, and so doing an injury to that God to whom they bear so notable a testimony, is it not a much greater injury they do him when they say that his predictions must be understood otherwise than the world believed them, though he himself praised, promised, accomplished this belief on the world's part? And why cannot he cause the body to rise again and live for ever? Or is it not to be believed that he will do this because it is an undesirable thing and unworthy of God? Of his omnipotence, which effects so many great miracles, we have already said enough. If they wish to know what the Almighty cannot do, I shall tell them he cannot lie. Let us therefore believe what he can do by refusing to believe what he cannot do. Refusing to believe that he can lie, let them believe that he will do what he has promised to do and let them believe it as the world has believed it, whose faith he predicted, whose faith he praised, whose faith he promised, whose faith he now points to. But how do they prove that the resurrection is an undesirable thing? There shall then be no corruption, which is the only evil thing about the body. I have already said enough about the order of the elements and the other fanciful objections men raise, and in the thirteenth book I have, in my own judgment, sufficiently illustrated the facility of movement which the incorruptible body shall enjoy, judging from the ease and vigor we experience even now when the body is in good health. 
those who have either not read the former books or wish to refresh their memory may read them for themselves. Chapter 26 But, say they, Porphyry tells us that the soul, in order to be blessed, must escape connection with every kind of body. It does not avail, therefore, to say that the future body shall be incorruptible if the soul cannot be blessed till delivered from every kind of body. But in the book mentioned above I have already sufficiently discussed this. This one thing only will I repeat. Let Plato their master correct his writings and say that their gods, in order to be blessed, must quit their bodies, or, in their words, die for he said that they were shut up in celestial bodies, and that nevertheless the God who made them promised them immortality, that is to say, an eternal tenure of these same bodies, such as was not provided for them naturally, but only by the further intervention of his will, that thus they might be assured of felicity. In this he obviously overturns their assertion that the resurrection of the body cannot be believed because it is impossible. For, according to him, when the uncreated God promised immortality to the created gods, he expressly said that he would do what was impossible. For Plato tells us that he said, As ye have had a beginning, so you cannot be immortal and incorruptible. Yet ye shall not decay, nor shall any fate destroy you, or prove stronger than my will, which more effectually binds you to immortality than the bond of your nature keeps you from it. If they who hear these words have, we do not say understanding, but ears, they cannot doubt that Plato believed that God promised to the gods he had made that he would effect an impossibility. For he who says, Ye cannot be immortal, but by my will ye shall be immortal, what else does he say than this, I shall make you what ye cannot be? The body, therefore, shall be raised incorruptible, immortal, spiritual, by him who, according to Plato, has promised to do that which is impossible. Why, then, do they still exclaim that this which God has promised, which the world has believed on God's promise, as was predicted, is an impossibility. For what we say is that the God who, even according to Plato, does impossible things, will do this. It is not, then, necessary to the blessedness of the soul that it be detached from a body of any kind whatever, but that it receive an incorruptible body. And in what incorruptible body will they more suitably rejoice than in that in which they groaned when it was corruptible? For thus they shall not feel that dire craving which Virgil, in imitation of Plato, has ascribed to them when he says that they wish to return again to their bodies. They shall not, I say, feel this desire to return to their bodies, since they shall have those bodies to which a return was desired, and shall indeed be in such thorough possession of them, that they shall never lose them even for the briefest moment, nor ever lay them down in death. Chapter 27 
Statements were made by Plato and Porphyry singly, which, if they could have seen their way to hold in common, they might possibly have become Christians. Plato said that souls could not exist eternally without bodies, for it was on this account, he said, that the souls even of wise men must sometime or other return to their bodies. Porphyry, again, said that the purified soul, when it has returned to the Father, shall never return to the ills of this world. Consequently, if Plato had communicated to Porphyry that which he saw to be true, that souls, though perfectly purified, and belonging to the wise and righteous, must return to human bodies, and if Porphyry, again, had imparted to Plato the truth which he saw, that holy soul shall never return to the miseries of a corruptible body, so that they should not have held each only his own opinion, but should have held both truths, I think they would have seen that it follows that the souls return to their bodies, and also that these bodies shall be such as to afford them a blessed and immortal life. For, according to Plato, even holy souls shall return to the body. According to Porphyry, holy souls shall not return to the ills of this world. Let Porphyry then say with Plato, they shall return to the body. Let Plato say with Porphyry, they shall not return to their old misery. And they will agree that they return to bodies in which they shall suffer no more. And this is nothing else than what God has promised, that he will give eternal felicity to souls joined to their own bodies. For this, I presume, both of them would readily concede that if the souls of the saints are to be reunited to bodies, it shall be to their own bodies, in which they have endured the miseries of this life, and in which, to escape these miseries, they served God with piety and fidelity. Chapter 28 Some Christians who have a liking for Plato on account of his magnificent style and the truths which he now and then uttered say that he even held an opinion similar to our own regarding the resurrection of the dead. Cicero, however, alluding to this in his Republic, asserts that Plato meant it rather as a playful fancy than as a reality for he introduces a man who had come to life again, and gave a narrative of his experience in corroboration of the doctrines of Plato. Labeo, too, says that two men died on one day, and met at a crossroad, and that being afterwards ordered to return to their bodies, they agreed to be friends for life, and were so till they died again. But the resurrection which these writers instance resembles that of those persons whom we have ourselves known to rise again, and who came back indeed to this life, but not so as never to die again. Marcus Varro, however, in his work On the Origin of the Roman People, records something more remarkable. I think his own words should be given. Certain astrologers, he says, have written that men are destined to a new birth, which the Greeks call palingenesy. This will take place after four hundred and forty years have elapsed, and then the same soul and the same body which were formerly united in the person shall again be reunited. 
this Varro, indeed, or those nameless astrologers, for he does not give us the names of the men whose statement he cites, have affirmed what is indeed not altogether true, for once the souls have returned to the bodies they wore, they shall never afterwards leave them. Yet what they say upsets and demolishes much of that idle talk of our adversaries about the impossibility of the resurrection. For those who have been or are of this opinion have not thought it possible that bodies which have dissolved into air or dust or ashes or water or into the bodies of the beasts or even of the men that fed on them should be restored again to that which they formerly were. And therefore, if Plato and Porphyry, or rather, if their disciples now living, agree with us that holy souls shall return to the body, as Plato says, and that nevertheless they shall not return to misery, as Porphyry maintains, if they can accept the consequence of these two propositions which is taught by the Christian faith, that they shall receive bodies in which they may live eternally without suffering any misery, let them also adopt from Varro the opinion that they shall return to the same bodies as they were formerly in, and thus the whole question of the eternal resurrection of the body shall be resolved out of their own mouths. Chapter 29 And now let us consider with such ability as God may vouchsafe how the saints shall be employed when they are clothed in immortal and spiritual bodies, and when the flesh shall live no longer in a fleshly but a spiritual fashion. And indeed, to tell the truth, I am at a loss to understand the nature of that employment, or, shall I rather say, repose and ease, for it has never come within the range of my bodily senses. And if I should speak of my mind or understanding, what is our understanding in comparison of its excellence? For then shall be that peace of God which, as the Apostle says, passeth all understanding, that is to say, all human and perhaps all angelic understanding, but certainly not the divine. That it passeth ours, there is no doubt, but if it passeth that of the angels, and he who says all understanding seems to make no exception in their favor, then we must understand him to mean that neither we nor the angels can understand, as God understands, the peace which God himself enjoys. Doubtless this passeth all understanding but his own. But as we shall one day be made to participate according to our slender capacity in his peace, both in ourselves and with our neighbor, and with God our chief good, in this respect the angels understand the peace of God in their own measure, and men too, though now far behind them, whatever spiritual advance they have made. For we must remember how great a man he was who said, We know in part, and we prophesy in part, until that which is perfect is come, and now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Such also is now the vision of the holy angels, 
who are also called our angels, because we, being rescued out of the power of darkness and receiving the earnest of the Spirit, are translated into the kingdom of Christ, and already begin to belong to those angels with whom we shall enjoy that holy and most delightful city of God, of which we have now written so much. Thus then the angels of God are our angels, as Christ is God's, and also ours. They are God's because they have not abandoned him, they are ours because we are their fellow citizens. The Lord Jesus also said, See that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always see the face of my Father which is in heaven. As then they see, so shall we also see, but not yet do we thus see. Wherefore the apostle uses the words cited a little ago, Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. This vision is reserved as the reward of our faith, and of it the apostle John also says, When he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. By the face of God, we are to understand his manifestation, and not a part of the body similar to that which in our bodies we call by that name. And so, when I am asked how the saints shall be employed in that spiritual body, I do not say what I see, but I say what I believe, according to that which I read in the psalm, I believed, therefore have I spoken. I say then, they shall, in the body, see God, but whether they shall see him by means of the body, as now we see the sun, moon, stars, sea, earth, and all that is in it, that is a difficult question. For it is hard to say that the saints shall then have such bodies that they shall not be able to shut and open their eyes as they please while it is harder still to say that every one who shuts his eyes shall lose the vision of God. For if the prophet Elisha, though at a distance, saw his servant Gehazi, who thought that his wickedness would escape his master's observation, and accepted gifts from Naaman the Syrian, whom the prophet had cleansed from his foul leprosy, how much more shall the saints in the spiritual body see all things, not only though their eyes be shut, but though they themselves be at a great distance. For then shall be that which is perfect, of which the apostle says, We know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Then, that he may illustrate as well as possible by a simile, how superior the future life is to the life now lived, not only by ordinary men, but even by the foremost of the saints. He says, When I was a child, I understood as a child, I spake as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. 
If, then, even in this life, in which the prophetic power of remarkable men is no more worthy to be compared to the vision of the future life than childhood is to manhood, Elisha, though distant from his servant, saw him accepting gifts, shall we say that when that which is perfect is come, and the corruptible body no longer oppresses the soul, but is incorruptible and offers no impediment to it, the saints shall need bodily eyes to see, though Elisha had no need of them to see his servant. For, following the Septuagint version, these are the prophet's words, Did not my heart go with thee, when the man came out of his chariot to meet thee, and thou tookest his gifts? Or, as the presbyter Jerome rendered it from the Hebrew, Was not my heart present when the man turned from his chariot to meet thee? The prophet said that he saw this with his heart, miraculously aided by God, as no one can doubt. But how much more abundantly shall the saints enjoy this gift, when God shall be all in all? Nevertheless, the bodily eyes also shall have their office and their place, and shall be used by the Spirit through the spiritual body. For the prophet did not forego the use of his eyes for seeing what was before them, though he did not need them to see his absent servant, and though he could have seen these present objects in spirit, and with his eyes shut, as he saw things far distant in a place where he himself was not. Far be it, then, from us to say that in the life to come the saints shall not see God when their eyes are shut, since they shall always see him with the Spirit. But the question arises whether, when their eyes are open, they shall see him with the bodily eye. If the eyes of the spiritual body have no more power than the eyes which we now possess, manifestly God cannot be seen with them. They must be of a very different power if they can look upon that incorporeal nature which is not contained in any place, but is all in every place. For though we say that God is in heaven and on earth, as he himself says by the prophet, I fill heaven and earth, we do not mean that there is one part of God in heaven and another part on earth, but he is all in heaven and all on earth not at alternate intervals of time, but both at once, as no bodily nature can be. The eye, then, shall have a vastly superior power, the power not of keen sight, such as is ascribed to serpents or eagles, for however keenly these animals see, they can discern nothing but bodily substances, but the power of seeing things incorporeal. Possibly it was this great power of vision which was temporarily communicated to the eyes of the holy Job, while yet in this mortal body, when he says to God, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee, wherefore I abhor myself, and melt away, and count myself dust and ashes. Although there is no reason why we should not understand this of the eye of the heart, of which the Apostle says, having the eyes of your heart illuminated. But that God shall be seen with these eyes, no Christian doubts, who believingly accepts what our Master and God says. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But whether in the future life God shall also be seen with the bodily eye, this is now our question. The expression of Scripture, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God, may without difficulty be understood as if it were said, And every man shall see the Christ of God. And he certainly was seen in the body, and shall be seen in the body when he judges quick and dead. And that Christ is the salvation of God, many other passages of Scripture witness, but especially the words of the venerable Simeon, who, when he had received into his hands the infant Christ, said, Now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace, according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. As for the words of the above-mentioned Job, as they are found in the Hebrew manuscripts, and in my flesh I shall see God, no doubt they were a prophecy of the resurrection of the flesh. Yet he does not say, by the flesh. And indeed, if he had said this, it would still be possible that Christ was meant by God, for Christ shall be seen by the flesh in the flesh. But even understanding it of God, it is only equivalent to saying, I shall be in the flesh when I see God. Then the apostle's expression face to face does not oblige us to believe that we shall see God by the bodily face in which are the eyes of the body, for we shall see him without intermission in spirit. And if the apostle had not referred to the face of the inner man, he would not have said, But we, with unveiled face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are transformed into the same image from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. In the same sense we understand what the psalmist sings, Draw near unto him, and be enlightened, and your faces shall not be ashamed. For it is by faith we draw near to God, and faith is an act of the Spirit, not of the body. But as we do not know what degree of perfection the spiritual body shall attain, for here we speak of a matter of which we have no experience, and upon which the authority of Scripture does not definitely pronounce, it is necessary that the words of the Book of Wisdom be illustrated in us. The thoughts of mortal men are timid, and our forecastings uncertain. For if that reasoning of the philosophers, by which they attempt to make out that intelligible or mental objects are so seen by the mind, and sensible or bodily objects so seen by the body, that the former cannot be discerned by the mind through the body, nor the latter by the mind itself without the body. If this reasoning were trustworthy, then it would certainly follow that God could not be seen by the eye, even of a spiritual body. But this reasoning is exploded both by true reason and by prophetic authority. For who is so little acquainted with the truth as to say that God has no cognizance of sensible objects? Has he therefore a body, the eyes of which give him this knowledge? Moreover, what we have just been relating of the prophet Elisha, 
does this not sufficiently show that bodily things can be discerned by the spirit without the help of the body? For when that servant received the gifts, certainly this was a bodily or material transaction. Yet the prophet saw it not by the body, but by the spirit. As, therefore, it is agreed that bodies are seen by the spirit, what if the power of the spiritual body shall be so great that spirit also is seen by the body? For God is a spirit. Besides, each man recognizes his own life, that life by which he now lives in the body, and which vivifies these earthly members and causes them to grow, by an interior sense and not by his bodily eye. But the life of other men, though it is invisible, he sees with the bodily eye. For how do we distinguish between living and dead bodies except by seeing at once both the body and the life which we cannot see save by the eye? But a life without a body we cannot see thus. Wherefore it may very well be, and it is thoroughly credible, that we shall in the future world see the material forms of the new heavens and the new earth in such a way that we shall most distinctly recognize God everywhere present and governing all things, material as well as spiritual, and shall see him not as now we understand the invisible things of God by the things which are made, and see him darkly as in a mirror and in part, and rather by faith than by bodily vision of material appearances, but by means of the bodies we shall wear and which we shall see wherever we turn our eyes. As we do not believe, but see that the living men around us who are exercising vital functions are alive, though we cannot see their life without their bodies, but see it most distinctly by means of their bodies, so, wherever we shall look with those spiritual eyes of our future bodies, we shall then too by means of bodily substances behold God, though a spirit, ruling all things. Either, therefore, the eyes shall possess some quality similar to that of the mind, by which they may be able to discern spiritual things, and among these God, a supposition for which it is difficult or even impossible to find any support in Scripture or, which is more easy to comprehend, God will be so known by us, and shall be so much before us, that we shall see him by the Spirit in ourselves, in one another, in himself, in the new heavens and the new earth, in every created thing which shall then exist, and also by the body we shall see him in every body which the keen vision of the eye of the spiritual body shall reach. Our thoughts also shall be visible to all, for then shall be fulfilled the words of the Apostle, Judge nothing before the time, until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and will make manifest the thoughts of the heart, and then shall every one have praise of God. Chapter 30 How great shall be that felicity, which shall be tainted with no evil, which shall lack no good, and which shall afford leisure for the praises of God, who shall be all in all. 
for I know not what other employment there can be where no lassitude shall slacken activity, nor any want stimulate to labor. I am admonished also by the sacred song in which I read or hear the words, Blessed are they that dwell in thy house, O Lord, they will still be praising thee. All the members and organs of the incorruptible body, which now we see to be suited to various necessary uses, shall contribute to the praises of God, for in that life necessity shall have no place but full, certain, secure, everlasting felicity. For all those parts of the bodily harmony which are distributed through the whole body, within and without, and of which I have just been saying that they at present elude our observation, shall then be discerned. And, along with the other great and marvelous discoveries, which shall then kindle rational minds in praise of the great artificer, there shall be the enjoyment of a beauty which appeals to the reason. What power of movement such bodies shall possess, I have not the audacity rashly to define, as I have not the ability to conceive. Nevertheless, I will say that in any case, both in motion and at rest, they shall be, as in their appearance, seemly. For into that state nothing which is unseemly shall be admitted. One thing is certain, the body shall forthwith be wherever the spirit wills, and the spirit shall will nothing which is unbecoming either to the spirit or to the body. True honor shall be there, for it shall be denied to none who is worthy, nor yielded to any unworthy. Neither shall any unworthy person so much as sue for it, for none but the worthy shall be there. True peace shall be there, where no one shall suffer opposition either from himself or any other. God himself, who is the author of virtue, shall there be its reward, for, as there is nothing greater or better, he has promised himself. What else was meant by his word through the prophet, I will be your God, and ye shall be my people, then, I shall be their satisfaction, I shall be all that men honorably desire, life and health and nourishment and plenty and glory and honor and peace and all good things. This too is the right interpretation of the saying of the Apostle, that God may be all in all. He shall be the end of our desires, who shall be seen without end, loved without cloy, praised without weariness. This outgoing of affection, this employment, shall certainly be, like eternal life itself, common to all. But who can conceive, not to say describe, what degrees of honor and glory shall be awarded to the various degrees of merit? Yet it cannot be doubted that there shall be degrees, and in that blessed city there shall be this great blessing that no inferior shall envy any superior, as now the archangels are not envied by the angels, because no one will wish to be what he has not received, though bound in strictest concord with him who has received. As in the body the finger does not seek to be the eye, though both members are harmoniously included in the complete structure of the body. 
and thus, along with his gift, greater or less, each shall receive this further gift of contentment to desire no more than he has. Neither are we to suppose that because sin shall have no power to delight them, free will must be withdrawn. It will, on the contrary, be all the more truly free, because set free from delight in sinning, to take unfailing delight in not sinning. For the first freedom of will which man received when he was created upright consisted in an ability not to sin, but also in an ability to sin. Whereas this last freedom of will shall be superior, inasmuch as it shall not be able to sin. This indeed shall not be a natural ability, but the gift of God. For it is one thing to be God, another thing to be a partaker of God. God by nature cannot sin, but the partaker of God receives this inability from God. And in this divine gift there was to be observed this gradation, that man should first receive a free will by which he was able not to sin, and at last a free will by which he was not able to sin, the former being adapted to the acquiring of merit, the latter to the enjoying of the reward. But the nature thus constituted, having sinned when it had the ability to do so, it is by a more abundant grace that it is delivered so as to reach that freedom in which it cannot sin. For as the first immortality which Adam lost by sinning consisted in his being able not to die, while the last shall consist in his not being able to die, so the first free will consisted in his being able not to sin, the last in his not being able to sin. And thus piety and justice shall be as indefeasible as happiness. For certainly by sinning we lost both piety and happiness, but when we lost happiness we did not lose the love of it. Are we to say that God himself is not free because he cannot sin? In that city, then, there shall be free will, one in all the citizens, and indivisible in each, delivered from all ill, filled with all good, enjoying indefeasibly the delights of eternal joys, oblivious of sins, oblivious of sufferings, and yet not so oblivious of its deliverance as to be ungrateful to its deliverer. The soul, then, shall have an intellectual remembrance of its past ills, but so far as regards sensible experience, they shall be quite forgotten. For a skillful physician knows, indeed, professionally, almost all diseases, but experimentally he is ignorant of a great number which he himself has never suffered from. As, therefore, there are two ways of knowing evil things, one by mental insight, the other by sensible experience, for it is one thing to understand all vices by the wisdom of a cultivated mind, another to understand them by the foolishness of an abandoned life. So also there are two ways of forgetting evils. For a well-instructed and learned man forgets them one way, and he who has experimentally suffered from them forgets them another the former by neglecting what he has learned, the latter by escaping what he has suffered. 
and in this latter way the saints shall forget their past ills, for they shall have so thoroughly escaped them all that they shall be quite blotted out of their experience. But their intellectual knowledge, which shall be great, shall keep them acquainted not only with their own past woes, but with the eternal sufferings of the lost. For if they were not to know that they had been miserable, how could they, as the psalmist says, forever sing the mercies of God? Certainly that city shall have no greater joy than the celebration of the grace of Christ, who redeemed us by his blood. There shall be accomplished the words of the psalm, Be still, and know that I am God. There shall the great Sabbath, which has no evening, which God celebrated among his first works, as it is written, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day, and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God began to make. For we shall ourselves be the seventh day, when we shall be filled and replenished with God's blessing and sanctification. There shall we be still, and know that he is God, that he is that which we ourselves aspired to be when we fell away from him, and listened to the voice of the seducer, ye shall be as gods, and so abandoned God, who would have made us as gods not by deserting him, but by participating in him. For without him what have we accomplished, save to perish in his anger? But when we are restored by him, and perfected with greater grace, we shall have eternal leisure to see that he is God, for we shall be full of him, when he shall be all in all. For even our good works, when they are understood to be rather his than ours, are imputed to us, that we may enjoy this Sabbath rest. For if we attribute them to ourselves, they shall be servile. For it is said of the Sabbath, Ye shall do no servile work in it. Wherefore also it is said by Ezekiel the prophet, And I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctify them. This knowledge shall be perfected when we shall be perfectly at rest, and shall perfectly know that he is God. This Sabbath shall appear still more clearly if we count the ages as days in accordance with the periods of time defined in Scripture, for that period will be found to be the seventh. The first age, as the first day, extends from Adam to the deluge, the second from the deluge to Abraham, equaling the first, not in length of time, but in the number of generations, there being ten in each. From Abraham to the advent of Christ there are, as the evangelist Matthew calculates, three periods, in each of which are fourteen generations, one period from Abraham to David, a second from David to the captivity, a third from the captivity to the birth of Christ in the flesh. There are thus five ages in all. The sixth is now passing, and cannot be measured by any number of generations, as it has been said, It is not for you to know the times which the Father hath put in his own power. After this period God shall rest as on the seventh day, when he shall give us, 
who shall be the seventh day, rest in himself. But there is not now space to treat of these ages. Suffice it to say, the seventh shall be our Sabbath, which shall be brought to a close, not by an evening, but by the Lord's day, as an eighth and eternal day, consecrated by the resurrection of Christ, and prefiguring the eternal repose not only of the spirit, but also of the body. There we shall rest and see, see and love, love and praise. This is what shall be in the end without end. For what other end do we propose to ourselves than to attain to the kingdom of which there is no end? I think I have now, by God's help, discharged my obligation in writing this large work. Let those who think I have said too little, or those who think I have said too much, forgive me, and let those who think I have said just enough join me in giving thanks to God. Amen. End of The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo if you enjoyed this recording, please support our channel by subscribing, liking, and sharing our content. We would also be happy to receive any comments or feedback below.